Welcome to episode 56 of Future Projection, a Baseball America podcast. I'm Carlos Colazzo, joined by Ben Badler. Today is July 19th. We're recording on a Wednesday this week. It's post-draft. Uh, what's going on, Ben? Yeah, just uh, it's good to, good to see you again, Carlos. It's been uh, a busy, busy time between, what, the draft, travel, seeing 2024s now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it has been. It's it's draft straight into PG National every year. Um, not much we can do about the the lack of a gap between that event. It's annoying because day three, obviously, I want to be on the ground for the entirety of the draft. It feels weird to, to cover the draft full time and then be traveling while it's happening. So I really hate if I have to be in the air during day three. But PG National starts the same day as day three of the draft every year, and there's always some workouts um, I, I think typically they do evening workouts the first day of PG National. I guess they have people travel in during the day, and then the evening they do BPs and in and outs and running. So it's a bit of a bummer because no matter how you do your schedule, you're always going to miss something. Um, but yeah, going from the draft straight into that, it, we talk about this every year, but it does feel like it's we never have a great opportunity to sort of recap and fully dive into the draft. So maybe we can do that. A little bit today i mean we've done some of that on the website we have draft summaries for all 30 teams just kind of picking out a theme if there is one to be found for each team's draft picking out a few interesting players on day two and day three that maybe you should take note of or who are surprise picks in that range so we have that for all teams on the website now and you can check that out we also have uh scouting reports for every player who is drafted inside the top 10 rounds i think this year I ran the numbers. I think we had like 76% of players drafted inside the top 10 rounds were on the BA 500 in some capacity. And I think the number that I'm particularly proud of is we only missed six high school players in that range. So we had like 90 plus percent of the high school players who went, which is cool. Um, Obviously, it's a little trickier every year to nail all the college seniors that are going to go. But we do have information for all those players. And I think I believe that's all updated on our draft database. So you should be able to go to any team in the draft database we have and go through and at least read up on at least half of of whatever team you're a fan of their class. And for a number of teams, we also have scouting reports on players that were drafted 11 plus. So there's plenty of of content. We're still kind of tracking signings as they come in. It's a two-week turnaround for the signing deadline. Um, But yeah, what did you think of the draft this year, Ben? I mean, I think maybe this is one of the least surprising in terms of players taken up top for me, but I'm curious if you had any thoughts on, on the draft itself or some slight changes to the broadcast this year, which I thought were cool. But yeah, I'll just let you give general thoughts about it. Yeah, it didn't seem like there was anything that was too shocking from the draft. We've been talking about how there was an elite group of five players at the top, and they went, I mean, you can you know debate the order, but those were the top five players drafted and you know th- there was no nobody who i think went in the first round even where you were like wow that guy was a first round pick or you know there mm-hmm. was no like nick york type selection or something like that where it caught everybody uh kind of off guard in that respect and then mm-hmm. even if you just look at our top 100 players pretty much all of them were drafted around or gonna get paid <laughs> around where they where we expected and mm-hmm. and just were drafted period um you know i think a few of them 
you know, somebody looking like a, a shortstop, Rock Chalowski or Camp Johnson, uh, left-hander, you know, Chalowski didn't get drafted. I'm, I'm sure that's just because he had very high bonus request and mm-hmm. teams were just saying, well, we'll spend our money somewhere else <laughs> instead and uh, go to UCLA and probably be a first-round pick after three years at UCLA and Camp Johnson looks like he'll, um, I would imagine, get to... I think LSU he's already announced point. he's intending to go to LSU, and yeah, I think he was similar deal. Price tag demands meant he was getting to campus. It was yeah. funny talking with uh, so Coach Jay Johnson was on the broadcast. Obviously, for day one, he had a number of players to talk about from LSU who are drafted, but like seeing him realize that he might have a chance to get Cam Johnson was actually pretty funny because I think he assumed that that Cam was just a goner for sure, given the stuff he he had shown. Uh, but yeah, we had seven players in our top 100 that did not get drafted in order. It's right-hander Joey Volchko, shortstop Rock Chalowski, who you mentioned, outfielder Grant Gray, third baseman Trent Caraway, shortstop Dylan Cup, right-hander Liam Peterson, and then outfielder Will Gasparino. I think if any of those players were drafted on day one, it wouldn't have been surprising at all. But also just given the amount of high school players who get selected and signed each year, given some of the commits and uh, assumed asking prices for, for these players is not shocking to see really any of them here. Um, we did talk about how a few of the high school shortstops were probably going to get squeezed out just given how much quality was in this class. Uh, I, I think the fact that only two are here in the top 100 is maybe fewer shortstops than I expected. It, it wouldn't have surprised me if there were a few other guys uh, in Rock's kind of neck of the woods on the rankings who weren't drafted. It's also funny, too, because Rock was at PG National, like, working the event, just because he was like, I have nothing else to do. I might as well go watch some players and, and make some money for school. So I, I got to hang out with him for a little bit at PG National, which was it's really a home cool. game. Yeah, home game for him. <laughs> yeah, it's like 20 minutes away from, from where he lives. So it was cool to... I actually asked him, I was like, so who was the most impressive pitcher who is the toughest ab for you in the 23 class and no hesitation he said cam johnson so the fact that no team took him and now lsu is going to see him for three years is really cool he just said the the deception and the movement of his fastball was an insane and really tough to hit so that was kind of yeah i mean he's a top what two to three high school lefty in the class i mean you got thomas white you could make a case for alex clemmy i would have cam johnson ahead of Clemmy, I, I yeah, think we that's had, just a um, fantastic get, again, potentially for LSU. Yeah, I mean, I think even at this point, you'll probably go beyond potentially. I think it's pretty pretty locked in that he's going to get to campus. But our left-handed pitchers on the board was Thomas White at 19, Joe Whitman at 35, and then Cam Johnson at 43. So we had him as the third overall left-handed pitcher in the class and the second high schooler, which I, I think I still am pretty confident in that in that order there, like you mentioned. But, man, good for LSU to get a talent to the campus. They really need some of those guys. It's long overdue. Yeah, absolutely. This, so, yeah. Uh, well, oh, that's the ahead. thing, too, is I don't even think they're – like they're, they are they do have a good tr- recruiting class from this 23 class. Uh, but, like, they're – when you look even beyond that for, like, 24 – and they'll, I'm sure they'll lose a lot of them, like Connor Griffin and Derek Curiel and some other players, but – they are just going to be they're just going to keep loading up and then a lot of their best recruits are already playing college baseball on 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 other teams so 
yeah, they're just going to be reloading and reloading. Yeah, I, I feel like it's always pretty easy to get talent to LSU, just considering the just how highly regarded the, the program is in college baseball, where it stands in the sport. But now having them come off the year they just had with the transfer portal, they seem like one of the teams that's been most aggressive in that space. Like They're not going to have any trouble reloading. Maybe you're not going to get a team like we saw last year that was so hyped and was just so loaded with talent. And obviously we, we haven't even mentioned this, but they did break the record for teammates going one, two or, or set the record. We've never seen it happen before in the draft. We did see Paul Skeens and Dylan Cruz go one, two in that order. Who knows how long it'll be before that happens again. But the fact that it happened is pretty cool. Makes our draft preview cover uh, look a little bit better in hindsight too. Um, so yeah, I mean, I wish that I had left once again. I think the last three years I had done a mock draft two or three days before the draft and not really moved it around too much on draft day. This year, I did make more tweaks on draft day. And if I if I had left it alone, it would have been better. I remember getting a text from uh, someone that I had sent the mock out a few days before. He was like, oh, the mock's looking pretty good today. I was like, wait, what? I, I thought I only had like three or four picks right he's like no you got seven i was like yeah that was the old one i changed it i made it worse (laughs) (laughs) so the mock blew up this year but i do think like you had mentioned earlier there there wasn't really a surprising pick in the first round that really the only i think the only pick that you could say that was a surprise in any capacity was bryce matthews at at 28 to the astros and even then i'm pulling up where we had him ranked we had matthews as a guy who was could easily go on day one yeah we had him ranked 57 that's much closer to an on-the-board pick compared to like the nick york selection there have been there have been many other picks in the first round in recent years that have been more surprising than that so i really don't think there was a single player maybe even drafted on day one i'm kind of just scrolling through to remind myself ben um excuse me ben williams where did he go? Ben Williamson, excuse me, William and Mary third baseman at 57 to the Mariners. I mean, that was probably the furthest off the board selection, but even then, I think it makes a lot of sense for the Mariners who took three high school players and then they got a player in in Williamson who they're taking on an underslot deal to help sign them. Like that makes a lot of sense to me. So, yeah, no huge surprises, I would say. Were there any picks in particular that you really liked? outside of the Tigers taking Kevin McGonigal in the supplemental first, because I know that was probably your favorite pick of the draft. Yeah, yeah, I liked uh, I liked that one. You're talking about picks outside the the first round? No, I, I think you can do it anywhere. I mean, we're still in the point where we're taking in the draft in its entirety, so I don't I don't think you need to get too cute. If you liked if you liked the Pirates taking skeins over Cruz, that would be fair game for this. So really, the the first or, or the entire draft is, is yours, Ben. Um, you know, I, I liked a little bit deeper in the first round. I liked the Cardinals drafting Chase Davis at 21. I think he's, he's just got a, I think he'll be, I think he's a better hitter than some of the, some of the college guys who went ahead of him, yeah. uh, both in terms of hit and power combination. Now there's going to be less defensive value because he's restricted to, a corner outfield spot. I mean, I think he's pretty athletic, but it's it's not going to be, mm-hmm. you know, shortstop or, or second or, or third base. Um, although I think a lot of the 
college shortstops draft ahead of him won't end up at shortstop either, but I, I have a lot more confidence in his hitting ability uh, or the combination of hitting ability and power that he has. Um, I think certainly there were swing and miss concerns earlier in his career, but he's, he's addressed that. I think Mm -hmm. he, he has a good swing, certainly big, big power. You see it in batting practice. You see it in game. You see it in the underlying EV data that he has. Uh, I think he just has a lot of, he just checks a lot of boxes that you're looking for as a hitter. So to be able to get uh, a college hitter like that, who mm-hmm. should, I think, move pretty quickly and has a chance to be a pretty impactful player to get him in the twenties, I think is a, a really nice get for, for them. Yeah, no, that's a good one. I think I agree with a lot of what you said. I'm really I'll be really curious to see what his contact rates look like in pro ball because you do mention the the history of his swing and miss questions and how he corrected that this year. I really am not sure how easy something like contact you're able to fix year over year if it's if, if just a mechanical adjustment, if it's an approach adjustment, and how sustainable that contact rate will be. But if it is, I think he has a chance to be one of the most impactful college bats that were taken in this first round, like you said, because he has power. He gets on base a lot, even when he was swinging and missing. He had pretty good walk rates. So if the contact is even just average, he can do a lot for you offensively. I think for me, one of the picks that I was really kind of wowed about when I saw it happen was Hurston Waldrop, a few picks later to the Braves at 24. This is one of those picks where I just really love because of the team player connection on top of the talent. Like, even with starter reliever questions, I thought Hurston Waldrop could have been a top 20 player in this draft. I think we saw all these hitters kind of squeeze out a number of arms, and we saw some high school pitchers go further down the board, presumably on overslot deals, um, like what typically happens. But, man, given what the Braves have done with, with pitching in general, how they've been able to fast-track arms to the big leagues, Spencer Striders and A.J. Smith-Shawvers, like Hurston Waldrop is has a lot of similarities to those pitchers. He's power oriented with really loud, pure stuff. I think the Braves have an excellent approach to pitcher development and they're able to allow these players just to kind of simplify what they're doing, have the confidence to just put their stuff over the plate and let it play. And I think if you do that with a player like Hurston Waldrop and you get him to throw a little bit more strikes, I mean, he has as much upside as anyone in this class, not named Paul Skeens, I would think on the mound. So that pick I really, really liked. Coming into this draft, I could see like wanting the Braves to invest a little bit more hitting in a farm system that really is lacking on bats. But considering their competitive window, where they're at now, I think this pick makes a lot of sense for them, just for organizational need, what they do well, talent. And they also got him in an underslot deal, which seems crazy to me. I'm not sure how they manage that one, but... Um, nice pick for the Braves there, getting Kirsten Waldrop to a three million dollar deal at pick twenty four. Was it was it significantly underslot for him? It was more than I was expecting it to be. It was so slot for pick twenty four is three point two seven million. It was basically two hundred and seventy thousand dollars under slot. So I don't I don't know if that qualifies as significant to you. We had a few other deals in the first round, like um Blake Mitchell, he signed for a deal that was a million under slot. Jacob Wilson at six signed for a million under slot. Tommy Troy 
at 12 was 600,000 under slot. Jacob Gonzalez, 500,000. Brock Wilkin at 18, 800. So I don't, I don't think they classify as significant given some of the other underslot deals we saw in the first round. And at this point, I actually think the only overslot deal we have in the first is George Lombard at number 26 to the Yankees. He signed for about $300,000 overslot at pick 26. Otherwise, and I think it makes sense, the, the deals you get earlier in the process are more likely to be underslot deals than the overslot deals we'll get later where teams and players are kind of haggling over every penny. So mm-hmm. I'm sure there will be some overslot deals. I'm in particular really curious to see what Dylan Cruz gets at number two. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't think it was significant. But just given where I assumed Waldrop would go and where we had him ranked on the board, he was one of the players that I was a little surprised had an underslot deal there. Yeah, it seems like, like you said, fantastic stuff just mm-hmm. right underneath Paul Skeens as far as raw stuff. But obviously the results whether it was an issue of pitch selection or command or something else has got to be got to be addressed because obviously the results were not there for him this year yeah i mean i'm curious i think it's a combination of one he just is not a great command pitcher at this point he's always been a little bit erratic both with fastball command and and sometimes the secondaries he also throws a, a secondary in the splitter that's just notoriously difficult to control so when you're not a command specialist and you throw a splitter if you get in a scenario where hitters are just spitting on that pitch and and making making Waldrop challenge you with other like either a fastball or the slider or the curveball in the zone things can get challenging I know a few instances this year when teams were able to successfully lay off that splitter it was just a lot trickier for Waldrop to just kind of be economical with his pitches and, and work through lineups quickly. So that's going to be key for him. Either throwing that pitch in the zone for strikes more often or just sharpening up the fastball command a little bit more. So when he is behind in counts, he has a pitch that he can kind of consistently go to to get over the plate. But if you're the Braves and Waldrop winds up being a power reliever, do you think that's a bad outcome? Like I guess this is a philosophical question as much as it is a question about where the Braves are at now. I don't necessarily think that's the worst thing in the world, just given how strong the Braves seem to be in every every facet. But you don't really want a reliever with your first rounder, I wouldn't think. Uh, I mean, if he ends up being like a, a really good, like a Josh Hader type reliever, I think he'd be happy with that. If he ends up being a you know fungible middle reliever, I don't think you're going to be yeah. all that excited. <laughs> yeah. How about picks in the first round that you maybe were surprised by or you didn't love as much? I The one that jumps out to me, and it's kind of the opposite of Hurston Waldrop, and just in terms of like the bonus that was gotten, is Nolan Shanuel at 11 to the Angels. He signed for slot there, 5.253 million. And kind of considering what Chase Davis got at 21, what some other college hitters have, have signed for behind him, who I thought were comparable or better talents i i assumed when shanuel went 11 that it was an underslot deal and to see him get slot there like kudos to him for getting that but i'm not so sure i love that that bonus at that pick just considering some of the questions i would have about shanuel coming from a smaller conference being first base only although again you can make a case that he's one of the most well-rounded hitters in the class outside of that elite top five group so i think you could argue it either way 
it was just probably the first bonus that that's been reported that I was a little surprised and thought it was on the higher end of, of what I was expecting it to be. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fair. I, I figured that was going to be an underslot deal when the pick was announced and they would use the savings to load up on players later in the draft, but <laughs> that, uh, that was not the case. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But any, any other picks either that surprise you or you're not a huge fan of, it seems like uh, some people don't love the Blake Mitchell pick as much as I do. Um, that That's where I was going to go with one of them. Um, mm-hmm. I think to take a high school catcher in a top 10 pick, you have to be, you, you need to be really extremely convicted on everything mm-hmm. with that player. And this is the third high school player drafted. And yes, it was an underslot deal, but you know, I'd have a hard time saying as much as I like Blake Mitchell, I think he's a good prospect. I have a hard time seeing him as the third best high school player in the country. I think there's a lot of things to like. He has, you know, plus plus arm. I mean, I've seen him up to 95 on the mound too, and a good curveball mm-hmm. too. I think he could legitimately, you know, be a good pitching prospect if he, ever want to do that you're not going to do the two-way thing with a catcher that's just not <laughs> that's just not going to happen um but you can you know feel very confident about him sticking behind the plate a lot of good tools back there uh, you know there's some there's some impact when he connects there's also some some hit risk there and then we've just also seen historically sometimes guys who we think are good defenders coming out of high school once they get into pro ball sometimes it it doesn't always work out uh, as well as as kind of the amateur projections had uh, you know had been for Mm -hmm. the player so just given given where you're drafting in the top 10 picks um, that seemed that seemed pretty aggressive to me like I, I would have been you know, to me, uh, the earliest I would consider taking a player like that would be maybe in the back of the first round. So mm-hmm. to take him eighth overall, given all the other players who were available mm-hmm. at that pick, was uh, uh, kind of a surprising. No, I shouldn't say surprising because I think you had him in the mock draft. But <laughs> yeah, I think that was one of the yeah. one of the few that we got accurately at the end of the day. Uh, with Jenkins yeah. and, and Blake Mitchell, so they were linked to him pretty consistently. We heard they wanted to do an underslot deal there. They did sign him to just over a million dollars under slot. Does that change kind of how you view that pick considering the money saved and their ability to presumably sign players um, further down the draft? Like they also took Blake Walters in the second. They took Hero Wyatt in the third round. They took Hunter Owen in the fourth. I think it's a good uh, good value to get Hunter Owen signed in the fourth round. And then also they took... In the 11th round, Jared Dickey, who at the time was one of the best available college players. Uh, and I'm not sure if there's been a signing announced with Jared Dickey, but the fact that they take him in the 11th uh, makes me feel pretty confident they are going to get him signed there. Do you like, I guess, the collection of players they have overall in the draft to sort of mitigate your concerns about the pick up top? And do you think the savings was enough there to warrant it? Because let me just pull up the signing, the slot values here. Mitchell signing for 4.8 is basically equivalent to him going 13th in the draft. I know you basically said you wouldn't feel comfortable with him until the back half of the first round, but I do think 
if you're looking at the BA draft board, where we had Mitchell ranked, uh, it's pretty in line with that. We had him ranked 15 overall, so him getting slot value essentially for the 13th overall pick, I just don't see it as entirely out of line with his talent where where I perceive his talent to be. And I do think if you're taking Blake Mitchell here, you probably, you mentioned you have to just have a lot of confidence in that player all around. I'm assuming the Royals are very high in his defensive ability. They're high in his hitting ability. And if he hits, I think he has a chance to be a really impactful player. Obviously, you acknowledge the risk of the high school catching demographic in general. I do think that there are some missed questions with the hit tool. But man, he has a ton of power. It's huge arm strength. If he catches and is a good defender and winds up being even a fringy hitter with that power, I think you're going to be really happy with that pick if it pans out. So I am not, I will be probably more, much more positive on this this draft class in general and this pick specifically than, than most of the people at BA, just kind of considering uh, how I've heard people talk about the risk of the, the demographic in general, which I don't entirely disagree with either. I, I just, I, I guess I'm taking the more optimistic route on, on Mitchell here. Yeah. I mean, I think you can make a case for, I mean, even Ralphie Velasquez ahead of Blake Mitchell, who the guardians got mm-hmm. with what the 23rd, 20 something, 23rd pick yep 23rd pick and i assume he's going to be an underslot deal there just given how cleveland has operated but i'm not entirely positive so and and i you know i have certainly more confidence in blake mitchell being able to catch than ralphie velasquez but i have a lot more confidence in velasquez's hitting ability and and the power too that comes with it where even if he moves off catching i think it, it still fits well but with, so you with, kind of broke it down there. What do you think about my Tyler Soderstrom comparison to Ralphie Velasquez? I think swings and bodies are, are quite a bit different, but in terms of overall value and profile and risk off the position, I think there are a lot of similarities between those two players. Also, yeah, just, both California kids. Yeah, as offensive-minded catchers who there's a lot of risk won't actually catch, but mm-hmm. even if they move off the position, they're still, you know, certainly, at least at draft times, uh, a lot of value that you see from them if they have to yeah go elsewhere um yeah it's it's just a really easy swing with velasquez good approach power and it's not just all pull oriented power too he has a a knack for really driving the ball the Mm -hmm. opposite way using the whole field um it's a pretty advanced trace to see in a hitter and, and somebody who's on the younger side for for the class as well so I wanted to bring up our, our preseason teams that we picked. So before the year, we both went through and we filled out a team, basically of, of the top players in the 2023 draft. We tried to make the best team we could, and then we were going to revisit at the draft to see who did better. A few notes I had from that, neither of us took the first catcher selected. Blake Mitchell went first off the board. You took Ralphie Velasquez as your catcher. I took Kyle Teal. All of these guys went in the first round, but we we didn't have the first catcher off the board. Also, neither of us had the first corner infielder drafted. That was Nolan Shanuel. You had Braden Taylor and Eric Batanti as your corner infielders. Uh, at Utility, you had Paul Skeens, which is a pretty prescient pick for you there. I had Johanny Morales and Aiden Miller as my corner infielders. And then at Util, I had Colin Houck. Um we also didn't have the first high school shortstop drafted. That was Arjun Namala. Your high school shortstops were, I think you actually only had Kevin McGonigal from that demographic. Your other middle infielder was Jacob Wilson. I had, it looks like just Colin Houck. Uh, we were pretty college heavy at that position. 
So we didn't have the first high school player or the high school first high school shortstop drafted. But I think overall, Ben, and we can go through these more in detail if you want, I think you won this this challenge because you at least had every single player that you picked selected in the draft. And you had every player on your team was either a first rounder or a supplemental first rounder. Kevin McGonigal went in the supplemental first and Thomas White went in the supplemental first. Everyone else was either first round and then the one player who wasn't was Eric Batanti, who was a third rounder. For me, I had one second rounder, Johanny Morales, one supplemental first rounder, Charlie Soto, and then I had one player who was not drafted at all, and that was Tanner Witt. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, who didn't get, like, would you take Rock Chalowski or <laughs> Johnson? Or? So oh. I distinctly remember punting on the pitching like you cleaned up at pitcher, you got the first three pitchers off the board in Skeens, who you also didn't even have to put at the pitcher position. You had him as your utility. You had Rhett Louder, you had Chase Dullander, um, and then you also had Thomas White and Hurston Waldrop. So like Thomas White is going to be paid like a first rounder. All of mine will be paid like first rounders as well. I had Noble Meyer, Bryce Eldridge, Charlie Soto, but yeah, the ta- the, the Tanner Witt pick really I think tanks my draft and even though i did have three of the top five players i think just the overall consistency and lack of misses in your class makes me lean towards yours but we can i'll run through the teams really quickly and you listeners can decide whose team you like better so ben's team was at catcher ralphie velasquez who went 23rd corner infielder Braden taylor who went 19th corner infielder eric batanti who was a third rounder Middle infield, you had Jacob Wilson, who was the sixth overall pick, and Kevin McGonigal, who went in the supplemental first. Your outfielders were Max Clark, third overall, Enrique Bradfield, 17th overall, and Johnny Farmello, 29th overall. Utility, best pick of the draft for sure, Paul Skeens, 1-1. Then your pitchers were Chase Dolander, 9th overall, Thomas White, uh, 35th overall, Rhett Lauder, 7th, and Hurston Waldrop, 24th. So that was your team. My team was at catcher Kyle Teal, 14th overall. Corner infielders Johanny Morales in the second round. Aiden Miller at 27th. Uh, middle infield Jacob Gonzalez, 15th. Matt Shaw, 13th. My outfield was Dylan Cruz, 2nd. Walker Jenkins, 5th. Wyatt Langford, 4th overall. Decent, yeah. Decent outfield for me. <laughs> but again, all of those picks are pretty easy to make at a time. Like Paul Skeens was not regarded as the 1-1 one, one when you took him. So I think that's still a better pick. Uh, Utila had Colin Houck, who went 32nd. My pitchers were Noble Meyer, 10th overall. Bryce Eldridge, 16th overall, who was selected as a two-way player. Uh, Charlie Soto, 34th overall. And then, rounding it out, Tanner Witt, not drafted. In hindsight, I think I would have rather had uh, a Joe Whitman at that pick. Or who's another arm in the draft outside of, like, see, who which would have been the best pitcher to, to pick for my last spot? Josh Noth with the Brewers. Yeah, it definitely would have been the one. Yeah, Noth. That would have been, that would have been an aggressive one before the season started, I think. Yeah, Tanner Witt was kind of rolling the dice on him coming back strong from injury, but he did the opposite of that. So I, I think it's smart for him to kind of go back and, and try and just reestablish his stock with another year. But, yeah, I guess that was the big question this, this class is like after the elite – group of arms who are you taking like i wouldn't have taken noth at that time 
maybe Ty Floyd, but he was still a bit further back. I think I thought of him more as like a third, second, third rounder at the time. Blake Walters, I wouldn't have taken. Sean Sullivan, definitely wouldn't have taken. I don't think we had him ranked on the top 200 at that point. So, uh, but but I'll give you the win for this, Ben. Kudos. I think your team is is really well selected, and there is yeah. there is value in just not missing at all. Plus, you have the one one in your class. So I I don't really think we can criticize you too much for anything. It's all it's all settled. We don't need to see how their major league careers play out. Just yeah, we can we can keep checking. But yeah, let us know who you guys thought won. If you had any any picks, you think were pretty good from us on on this team. But I think I'll go ahead and just give Ben the victory in our first ever. I don't even know what we're calling this exercise, but this thing that we did this year. Good job to you, Ben. All right, going back to the actual drafts, do you have any... So we, we had one question on Twitter from J.D. Cameron who asked, favorite four to six classes and why? I'm not asking you to give me four to six yourself. We probably will collectively be able to come up with those. But do you have any draft classes that you particularly came away from really liking or really being excited about? Um, I've got some in mind, but I'll let you, I'll let you go first if you want. I think the Tigers... Seems like they were engineering. I the knew least of you were. I knew the first were like couple picks just to elicit uh, <laughs> kind words for me <laughs> about their draft. Did uh, uh, Did Mark Connor text you before their picks and say, "Hey Ben, who should we take?" Because it really seems like like that was the case. Don't don't all teams? Do that, <laughs> like, no, hey, they don't. They're much a... they're much smarter than that. But yeah, the, Max yeah. Clark and Kevin McGonigal. If there is a, a if there is a way to your heart, getting those players one and two is is the way to do it. Yeah, I'm curious to see what the bonus ends up being for Kevin McGonigal. But Max Clark, like I, I don't think he could necessarily go wrong with Clark, Langford, and Walker Jenkins on the board. Well, you could go wrong if you took you know I don't know like someone Jacob not Wilson named them. Or, <laughs> yeah, just some other player like Kyle Teal or whoever else on like an. Like, you know, those are fine players, too. But I'm curious if Detroit fans, how they are going to react. I mean, they probably already reacted to this pick, obviously. But I'm curious how they're taking it, because Detroit was one of the toughest teams for us to get a read on in mock draft reporting the the entire time. We, we assumed they were going to take one of the college players, I think, pretty consistently, just given what they'd done in the past, given how the board was lining up. But like to your point, all of these players who were available make a lot of sense. You could probably line them up in any order. I am curious if Tigers fans were disappointed that the team passed on Langford and instead went with the high schooler and Max Clark. I would have taken Langford in that spot, but I, like I don't think you can argue with any of the three. Um, so you're probably going to give Tigers fans some more optimism with your your analysis of this pick here. I think for my sense is generally fans, not necessarily baseball america readers or if you're listening to this podcast but just you know you're a fan of the team you kind of tune into the draft uh casually if at most or you just kind of see who the pick is they, they probably prefer to see a college player taken yeah. just because they'll help the team faster um but and, and even then like i think i think we talked about this recently i think for the elite high school players their their timeline is pretty similar to the college guys I think once you go further into the draft, that's true. But like Max Clark and Walker Jenkins are well ahead of most high school players selected, and we've seen these top high school players in, the, in their draft classes move pretty quickly to the big. So I don't, even if Langford does make an impact in the big league sooner, I don't think it's going to be a huge gap between him and say Max Clark. If if up. if Max Clark ends up being as good as 
we are as good as I think he is. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you look at, but you look at the disparity right now between, oh yeah, Jackson Holiday could be playing in Baltimore in 2024, two years after he got drafted out of high school, whereas Drew Jones and Elijah Green, yeah. who were top five overall picks out of high school, have no chance, I think, of, <laughs> of yeah. that happening. Um, but yeah, anyway, I really like Max Clark. Talked about him a ton. Um, I think he, in a lot of years, him and Arden Walker Jenkins, too, could be number one overall type picks just an extremely well-rounded player a lot of confidence in his hitting ability the defense premium position good reads in the outfield plus plus runner plus plus arm it's athleticism tools skills and then the off the field stuff is just a like a nice cherry on top as far as being an extremely marketable fan favorite type player i mean do you see the big following that he has already i think if he ends up being i think he'd end up having a you know like a corbin carroll type of uh, oh no not the corbin carroll comp what's what's wrong with that i think corbin carroll has become the most popular comp to throw on players he was comped like three players this year in the draft i don't i don't like the corbin carroll comp with max clark but i think in terms of like overall value and production that you're talking about i think that that makes well, more i think, sense I, think I mean physically they're different kind of yeah we players, can't hindsight and... corbin carroll max clark at this point is much high, higher regarded as a prospect than corbin carroll was at the time right he, he i mean i mean the, the production that we're seeing from corbin carroll this yeah. year is something you we could see from from max clark it's Uh, funny because i think that corbin carroll's power output now is towards the higher end of outcomes that you would be happy with with max clark and saying that while also thinking of how these two are built physically at the same age you would almost expect the inverse or at least i would have oh yeah max clark's legs are like he's much more physical and is like twitchier than carroll was at the time and now carroll is like one of the fastest players in the mlb and I don't know what his home run output is right now, but if you told me he was going to hit however many home runs he's at right now during his high school senior year, I would have been shocked. He's at 18 right now through 90 games. So basically on pace to have a 30 homer season, something like that, which is crazy. Yeah, so I I, I really like Max Clark. And then to get Kevin McGonagall, again, like... I would I would take Kevin McGonagall over, say Blake Mitchell, for example, who went in the top ten overall picks. I would mm-hmm. take him over a lot of the shortstops. Yeah. Actually, probably all of the shortstops. I would take him over Namala. I would take him over Colt Emerson, George Lombard. I, I like all those players. Those are all good players. But yeah, I think I mean we all, everybody who watched McGonagall, and and frankly, just all of these shortstops last year. Throughout the summer, with Team USA, in the fall, like, is there anybody who saw any of these guys out hit Kevin McGonagall? Like, again, yeah. like I really like Colt Emerson, but he didn't out hit <laughs> Kevin McGonagall. Like, none of these guys did. Now he's not as big and physical as mm-hmm. as Namala. I get that, and and Namala is about a full, probably a little over a full year younger. So that's that makes a difference, but um, you have to have, I think, supreme confidence 
uh, or at least as much as you can for a high school player in McGonagall's hitting ability. It's just a really mm-hmm. sh- sh- compact, efficient swing from the left side, a ton of contact, extremely mature approach for his age. He's not like, you know, that big and he's not like a super, super athlete, but it, I think he, I think he moves his feet well at, at shortstop. I think there's, I have a little more confidence. He might be able to stay at shortstop, but if not put him at second, put him at third, the, I think the bat profiles well mm-hmm. at either position. So to me, the Tigers at pick three and pick 37 are getting, you know, a, a number one overall type talent. And then they're getting a player who I would have drafted in a top 15 overall pick. So they're mm-hmm. getting to me two top, top 15 players and picking at three and, and 37, you know, some of the picks later down the board, you know, whatever, they're not, nothing like jumps out at me as anything, you know, spectacular, there for me but I, I really like those top two picks for them yeah i'm looking at the shortstop so 12 shortstops were taken before kevin mcgonigal and just thinking about kevin mcgonigal's likelihood to stick at shortstop and a lot of these other players like i'm going to run down this list how many of these players do you think have a greater than 50 percent chance to stick at shortstop because already there were a lot of split campy shortstop profiles and then there were also a number of players who were selected as shortstops that I don't think should have been selected as shortstops, or at least I was very surprised to hear them selected as shortstops. So let me just go down this list of shortstops drafted until I reach Kevin McGonigal and tell me how many of these players you think actually have a, a reasonable chance to stick at the position. So Jacob Wilson is the first one. Yeah. Then yes for him. I would agree. Tommy Troy at 12. I would say no. Probably not. Okay, Matt Shaw at 13, I would say no. No. Jacob Gonzalez at 15, I would say I would say more likely to move than to stick at shortstop. Yeah. Yeah. I mean I would I would keep certainly keep him at shortstop for a while. I would start him there, but in, yeah. in like terms of long-term outcomes, I think no. Braden Taylor, who played third base this spring. <laughs> uh, probably not. So he's the first one that I was surprised to hear selected at shortstop. Also the Rays have a <laughs> yeah, they'll they'll stuff. they'll throw anyone at shortstop too though. Yeah, fair uh, Arjun Namala. Like I could see uh, either way, but I would still lean move off. Like I think he's going to get big and physical. I don't think he's like the quickest guy. I think he's got good actions, but I think second or third is more likely. Yeah, another guy. It's like keep him there as long as you can for sure. Hope he there's a chance he could stay at shortstop. Okay, so you you can go yes on him, and I'll go no. So that's. So far, that's two players that we have. Uh, Colt Emerson, I think I would say yes for him. Uh, I would say, I would say most likely second base with him, second or third. Okay, so we can do three if we're taking who. If one of us says yes, just to be on the optimistic side, we have three players with you know and me yes on Emerson. George Lombard, I would say no. I think third. I don't know, man. He just like <laughs> he keeps getting better at everything consistently, like. Yeah, I don't know. I don't want to bet against that. I could. I, I mean, I could see him going to third. I just saw him the other uh, the other day, like right before the draft. I saw him because mm-hmm. I was going to see his uh, at the NPI in Atlanta, and his younger brother Jacob, who's a 2026 mm-hmm. player, and is going to be also really, really good, and looks like a like a skinny version mm-hmm. now of of George. But I was like, 
I was like, I think George got like taller and stronger. <laughs> he definitely again. got stronger. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you're, you're yes on Lombard. So we have four now, I believe is the number. Yeah. Four. Okay. Aiden yeah. Miller, who also was a third baseman was selected as a shortstop. That one is the most surprising to me. Yeah, they they announced him as a shortstop. That's right. Yeah, they um, did. I don't know. <laughs> they did announce. We have him listed as a shortstop. Let me check the draft I, tracker. I like I like Aiden Miller, and I I know. thought it was like he would be a question of is he going to stick at third, not yeah. is he going to play shortstop. I think he could stick at third, and that's not necessarily a lock either. Well, this one, so he's listed as third base on MLB's draft tracker. But I'm pretty sure he was announced as a shortstop, and that's how our database has them listed. So right. I guess this one is open for maybe, is it like a, was it an accident he was selected here? Is ours right? But I'm, I'm pretty positive he was selected as a shortstop. But we both are knowing him. Bryce Matthews. Where are you at on him? I, I, I just lean yes on this one, but don't have any strong takes. I think more likely than a number of the players we talked about before to stick at the position yeah. just because of the athlete. Um, and then as I say that, Ty Pete is next, but I would say no on Ty Pete sticking at shortstop. I've just talked to too many scouts who don't think he is, so I'm going with them on this one. He played a lot of third base, too. Um, mm -hmm. It's weird because he's such a good athlete. Yeah, I mean, he is. I'm sure that helped boost him up the the boards to go to the that 30th overall pick. Um, I think third or outfield for him. Yeah. I mean, I, I think he could play the infield. Like mm -hmm. I wouldn't, it's not like he's a burner. I, I said runner. third. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, w I wouldn't send him to the outfield because I don't think he's going to play. I wouldn't field. send him there now. I mean, I would send almost all these guys out as shortstops, except for like Braden Taylor and Aiden Miller. But just with the expectation that some of them would move off fairly yeah, quickly. Yeah, if we're saying most likely, I think most likely somewhere else for him. Okay, Adrian Santana, this is the one that I'm supremely confident he's going to be a shortstop. Yeah, yeah, shortstop. Colin Houck. Mm. This one for me is tough because I, I, I'm, I'm such a believer in him overall. He's like more like my Kevin McGonigal of this class. But just with the frame, I it wouldn't be surprising for me to see him move off and play third and play that really well. But I will say yes for him. I could see him stick at shortstop. I'll be optimistic on Hauk. I'd be with the same way. Yeah, and I think it just could be just circumstantial depending mm -hmm. on who else you have at shortstop that might end up yeah. pushing him to third. Yeah. And then the last one is Kevin McGonigal. For me, strong, strong no on this one, but you seem to be more optimistic on his chances to stick. I'm more optimistic. I still think it's it probably will be second or maybe third base, but... Okay. So of the 13 shortstops, we have Wilson as yes. We have Namala. Did you say yes? I think you said yes. Uh, like, I don't... <laughs> no, <laughs> yes, it's... relative to you, but... I'm not like confident. Okay, so Emerson and Lombard between us, we both said yes on one of those, right? Yeah, I mean the the only two we really have conviction on here are Wilson Santa, and Adrian Santana and Santana. Wilson. Yeah. <laughs> so it'll be interesting to see of these shortstops because there were a ton drafted in the first round. I think looking at the number of shortstops drafted in the first round in any draft class is a reasonable proxy of the talent. But there are a ton of players who I just don't expect to be shortstops. So 
like I'm curious what the over under would be set on these, and I don't even know how you would qualify it because if there are a couple of players who who play some shortstop at the big league level but move around and are like utility types, or early on in their career they play shortstop but maybe the bulk of their career spend another position, like you could argue it either way. I just think if you if you just looked at the board and you said oh there's all these shortstops, you probably are overstating uh, how many actual real shortstops are in this class, but. Well, I think some of these guys, too, who we aren't sure if they're going to stay at shortstop, who have question marks, will end up staying there. Like, if you go back and look at Bo Bichette coming out of high school, people thought, oh, yeah, he'll Mm -hmm. move to to third base. And then if you saw him after he signed and certainly a year into his Mm -hmm. career in in pro ball, and and definitely by the time he got to double A, it was like, oh, no, this is is a shortstop. This guy Mm -hmm. can play the position. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good call. I mean, someone is going to get – stronger and faster too I, I think it's normal to assume people will slow down once they get into pro ball but the opposite happens just as maybe not just as often but it, it still can happen and more reps better instruction like yeah you know well like i'm sure george lombard has gotten plenty of good instruction <laughs> um but even for him, like he was a multi-sport guy, wasn't entirely focused. I do think when you're entirely focused on baseball, there is just some mm-hmm. amount of improvement that's going to come from, like you said, the increased reps. Even even if the instruction, even if he, he's like always had really good instruction, just the fact that he will be doing it more often in a pro environment with really targeted reps in practice, like seeing the game at faster speeds on a daily basis – like yeah, I think there's there's almost no way that you get worse. Um, well, depending how big you get. Yeah, the the, you, the size grow, and physicality is the one yeah. is the one thing. Yeah, so it, it'll be really interesting, I think, to see with these shortstops and and there are a number of other players drafted further down that that we like, like Walker Martins of the world, Sammy Stiffers of the world. Um, I mean, Eric Batanti was drafted as a shortstop. I mean, he. He's always moved really, really freakishly well for his size. So, uh, well, that's the. I mean, the, you know, we were asked four to six drafts, but uh, the question yeah, from JD. Yeah, about I think we've we, gotten one down, by the way. This well, is I, but that was going to be the, another one that I, I thought was pretty intriguing to me was the what the Brewers did. Yeah. Okay. Tell me about draft. the Brewers. So, and I say that, and I'm not even like a a huge brock wilkin fan so i say that even though their first pick is like eh, like i'm I'm not totally sold on it yet because well, i th- i think i should have known that this would be a draft that you love because they they took josh noth in the supplemental first and then they took eric batanti in the third and those seem to be players that you really like and i could also see you being a big fan of like cooper pratt and and also just mike bove's hitting ability they seem like ben badlerish players yeah, so they, they took Wilkin first. I mean, huge power. I don't think there's any question about that tool with him. Wilkin uh, is also coming on a pretty significant underslot deal here, so that's a factor. He signed for $3.1 million. The slot value is $4 million, so they're saving around $870,000. Um, and I think they also got Josh Noth on an underslot deal. So, Yeah, I think, yeah. Uh, to me, there's there's some risk with Wilkin as far as the pure hit. I mean, it seems like it got better this year, but then there's also risk on him ending up at first base. So it's, there's like some of those high school shortstops we just mentioned, I, I would like ahead of him, but then some of their next picks. Yeah. Josh Noth, 
33rd overall. I think he has a ton of really appealing um, attributes to build off for a pitcher. Uh, he's still young. I, he's still 17. He's been up to 97, 98, sitting 92, 95, 96 uh, as a starter. And then the two breaking balls he has are, are just two of the better breaking pitches in the country, slider, curveball. Uh, there's some feel for a changeup. It's a, a pretty efficient delivery that he has to, to, to throw strikes. So um, he's not, you know, you're six, four, six, five guy, but it's, it's very much a starter look to me between the repertoire, the delivery, the, the athleticism that he has, the control, and then two, two breaking balls that should be big time bat missing pitches for him. And then Eric Batanti, in the third rounds who, yeah, you mentioned him uh, listed as a shortstop. He's probably six, five does not physically look like a shortstop when <laughs> just when you see him walk off the bus. And I'm not saying he's going to be a shortstop long-term either, but he moves around with pretty surprisingly good body control. Yeah. Every single person that sees him, doesn't think he should be going out to shortstop and then they see him take infield and they're like wait wait a minute that looked way better than it should have so he'll get every opportunity to stick there and just be one of these freakish big guys who stays even if you still think he moves like the fact that he can move that well the fact that his actions are so good i mean he he has a chance to be a really good third baseman at the very least and that's still valuable yeah, I think it's – and I've seen him play first base. If he ends up at first base, he's really good defensively over there. But I do think he has a chance to be a third baseman, plenty of arm strength. And then, you know, we haven't even talked about the most appealing thing that he does, which is plus-plus raw power. Yeah. Um, I, I think he has a chance to be a 30-plus home run yep. hitter. Now, it's definitely power over hit, but I think there's enough contact in there that he he has a good chance to to get to that power and to make enough contact he's also extremely young for the class like he would fit as a 2024 player pretty comfortably just he would be younger in 24 than a number of the players we talked about really liking in in this class currently like he'd be younger than kevin mcgonigal is now he'd be significantly younger than walker martin in this class he'd be younger than Aiden Miller, who's viewed as one of the better hit power players in the class, like he's exceptionally young. Oh, we I mean, we just came out with our 2024 draft rankings, and you just look at the players who are, you know, top 10 high school players there. He's younger than a lot of them. And frankly, like, I mean, he would he would absolutely be a top 10 player in the 2024 high school class if he was there. Yeah. I'd have a hard so time. So get excited about 24, everyone. Yeah, I'd have a hard time putting him outside of the top six high school players. Like, I think if he were to reclass, like, uh, down back into the 24 class, he'd, like, we would have him as a projected first-round pick. Yeah. So to get him there in the third round, I, I really I really like that pick for, for the Brewers. Yeah, okay, let me pick out one now. Um, let's talk pitchers, and let's go to the Marlins, because this was a team that we completely whiffed on with the mocks. 
I think everything that I had heard with Miami was, oh, they're looking at hitters, they're looking at hitters, maybe college guys over high school guys. Then the college talk faded a little towards the end, but it was still hitter, hitter, hitter with Miami. Uh, They instead went high school pitcher, high school pitcher. I think it's awesome. I think, again, similar to how I was talking with Atlanta, you could make a case that that maybe you want to infuse some hitters in Miami system, just considering some of the players they've taken who haven't lived up to their expectations. Uh, you don't have a lot of impact offense in that system. But I really love Miami just kind of doubling down on what they do well and taking who I would have viewed as best player available at their pick at number 10 overall in Noble Meyer and then getting Thomas White in the supplemental first round. Like, you're getting two of the best pure pitchers in the class, two legitimate first-round talents with your first two picks, and it's also a demographic and a player profile that you've really shown you can develop and develop pretty well. Again, similar to Detroit for you, this this draft is kind of just built on the first two picks for me that I really like. Like, there are some guys who are interesting further down the board, like Andrew Lindsay at Tennessee, I think Justin Storm is another pitcher who I'd be really excited about with Miami specifically. Um, but this one just comes down to massive upside potential with Noble Meyer and Thomas White with an organization that seems to be able to get the most out of their arms. I think you could make an easy case that Noble Meyer is the best pitcher in the class outside of Paul Skeens if you are willing to tolerate the risk of the high school right-hander demographic and then uh, I'm, I don't know who the high school left-hander who has such easy velocity uh, that Thomas White seems to have. Like I have a, a bit more questions about Thomas White just with the breaking stuff and with the control. Like He sprays it around a decent bit, but in terms of talent and upside, Miami clearly shot for the moon here, and I really love that. I, I, I like when teams just are not afraid to go for risky demographics and it just seems like a great pairing of talent and player development for Miami. So I think they are like the first team I think of when I'm like, Oh, I really like their draft class. It would be, it would be the Marlins. Yeah. The two best high school pitchers in the country and they got both of them. Um, what? Yeah. Noble Meyer. Yeah. You can say high school pitchers risk, especially right-handed pitchers certainly. But, um, I think Meyer alleviates a lot of the risk within mm-hmm. that demographic just by checking so many boxes yeah that it's like it's like for. louder pure stuff compared to andrew painter at the same time and better touch and feel compared to mick abel at the same time so i really do think like a if you wanted to do some blend of those two players as a player comp for noble meyer i think it makes a lot of sense he has a similar frame and physicality um he's got kind of the breaking ball that mick abel showed with better feel to throw it around the strike zone more consistently and while Andrew Painter's slider bumped up a grade or maybe even two grades in pro ball, Noble Meyer has already flashed a 70-grade slider. You mentioned Josh Noth having one of the better breaking balls in the class. If if it's not Noth, I think it's probably Noble Meyer uh, with his slider, and I think he's probably going to show a pretty good changeup when he has to use that pitch more more frequently in the future as well. So, I mean, he's an elite, elite high school pitching talent. I'm curious to see what sort of bonuses these two are going to get. I don't, I don't think I have official numbers for either of them right now. Um, but everyone from the fourth round to the eighth, I think, for Miami has been uh, under slot, slightly under slot deals. So I, I would assume Kemp Alderman and Brock Bradenberg are also 
going to be under slot, and then they're going to put a lot of their money towards the top two guys. So maybe a risky draft class, but uh, one that I really like. If they hit on even one of these guys, I think it'll be worth it. Yeah, I think with White in, in particular, I'm curious to see what the the number ends up being. Um, because it's, yeah, like you said, Meyer, starter, high-end profile, uh, projection starter, uh, White, you know, fastball up to, you know, he'll sit, what, 90, 92, 95, touch, touch a six and a seven, very easy, mm-hmm. extremely advanced changeup. I think it's probably just one of the better changeups in the country for yeah. a high school pitcher, which Definitely. is especially helpful as a left-handed pitcher. Uh, and then we saw, you know, improved, you know, breaking ball as the, the season wore on. I think just, you know, he's still a six five six pushing six six long-armed, lanky pitcher, so it is a very – easy delivery sometimes he gets a little out of sync with his long limbs still but um you can see him kind of self-correct within games to to make adjustments i think if he didn't have one bad outing at the end of the year uh on kind of a a tough mound that he's struggled on where you could see his Mm -hmm. um i mean you could just see his mechanics were a little bit off uh his timing his tempo was a little bit slower to the plate that it usually is if, if he didn't have that, I, I suspect he would have gone a lot higher, but then again, we'll see what the mm-hmm. bonus ends up being. It could, uh, <laughs> it's could end up being, he gets paid like a top, uh, 15, 20 overall type pick. Yeah. I would be very surprised if he wasn't paid like a first rounder. And I would imagine there are a number of teams in the back of the first who are, who are interested in him that just couldn't match whatever bonus, uh, that was being floated by Miami with their second pick coming back. So, uh, that'll be interesting to see. Another team that I really liked, unless you have more to say about the Marlins, is the Reds. And this one is more for like the totality of what they did throughout the draft. Like every single pick they made on day one, I was a big fan on. They fan of. They took Rhett Louder at seven, which I think is perfectly in line with talent, and I think it actually fits an organizational need for them, um, which is great. Ty Floyd, they got at thirty-eight. I felt like Ty Floyd could have gone ten spots higher pretty easily they got both those players on underslot deals which i think is good value um put some of that savings towards sammy Safura in the second round at pick 43 again another player i expected to go in the back of the first round pretty comfortably and i thought if he didn't go in the back of the first he was going to go in the supplemental round so to push him to their second round pick on an overslot deal i really liked um they have a few players further down the board who are really exciting to me Cole Schoenwetter has really impressive pure stuff and athleticism, even if he has some reliever risk. Connor Burns is probably easily the best defensive catcher in the class, and he has raw power, even if there's a lot of hit risk. Uh, Dominic Patelli is a really impressive defensive shortstop at Miami, who's coming off a career year offensively. I think Jack Moss is a pretty solid pick to start off day three. They have guys like John Pierre Ortiz in day three, who's really interesting and has tools. I think they selected him as a two-way player. I'll be curious if they sign him there, but I really just love the full package of, of players. I mean, e- even Ethan O'Donnell is a solid producing college player. They just took a lot of guys at kind of slot value throughout the draft, and I like when teams play the board fairly straight up. Like, they don't have any obvious like senior sign huge money savers they don't have a top heavy draft class it's pretty balanced they have high school players i like they have college players i like they have arms and hitters i really like it just overall what are your thoughts on the reds 
Yeah, I like the especially those top three picks seem to seem to all be pretty good where they stacked up. And then my question too is, do you think because we talked about hey, what if the Rangers somehow ended up with Paul Skeens? Could he pitch in the big leagues this year? Do you think there's any chance with the Reds taking Rhett Lauder with as polished as Rhett Lauder is mm-hmm. as a pitcher? And given that the Reds are actually now a competitive team, I mean, they're only like two and a half games right back right now in the NL Central. Do you think there's any chance he could pitch for them down the stretch in the big leagues this year? Um. So he threw 120 innings. That seems like kind of a near the top end of what you would want a pitcher to throw at this point. I, what I struggle with is like, how do you deal with Louder being shut down to end the season and then ramping him back up after he's already booked 120 innings? Like, I, I'm not sure how I think about that. I'm not sure how teams think about that. In terms of talent and need for the team. I think it makes a ton of sense. Like we've talked about Rhett Lauder being maybe the pitcher in the class that you need to project on less than anyone else. He's pretty ready-made. He has great feel for all three pitches. It's some of the best command in the class. Like even if you don't think the stuff is going to tick up significantly from what it is now, I think all of his all of his pitches are are pretty ready to get outs at a at a high level. It's more of just like a workload question and how does how does ramping down and ramping back up in the middle of the year and then throwing presumably high stress innings for a competitive team at the big league level with no pro experience like we just haven't seen many players do that and I don't know that louder is some exceptional talent to kind of buck the trend whereas with with Paul Skeens I I would think he's more of that sort of outlier player so I guess my my real answer is I don't know but I know that JJ was talking to me shortly after the draft about like exploring a piece about just this like how how realistic would it be for the Reds to push him to the big leagues this year uh, just kind of considering where they're at I mean where do you feel strongly either way I kind of lean no but it would be fun to see happen I think he – it wouldn't surprise me if it did happen. I think the point you're making is the one that I would agree with about having a guy, you know, like you said, throw 120 innings and then have to, you know, stopping pitching and then ramping back up for the end of the season. The The ramp back up part, I could see them having some mm-hmm. caution with, but I don't think – like 120 innings for a 21-year-old pitcher is not some like outrageous number of innings to yeah. throw. And if you're going to add some onto that, like I don't think that's that big of a yeah. deal. Um, we've seen, and we yeah, can see. Yuri, yeah, like, Yuri is 20 years old right now. I'm trying to see what his total innings are this year, combining minor leagues and majors. He's thrown a 31 in the minors and 53 in the majors. I don't know if they're babying him with his starts. It wouldn't surprise me if they were, but yeah, I, I don't really know. Cause I, I just seeing how teams use pitchers, it, it seems like it's a, a bit of a high innings threshold, but I don't know if that means it's like the correct innings threshold to limit someone to like, how does, how does going to a pro schedule compared to a college schedule? 
change this? Like, is there a way you could kind of keep him on a similar schedule to college to ease that transition? In some ways, him performing in the College World Series makes you consider this more, but also, like, if he hadn't been on a postseason team, maybe it's even easier to make the move just from a workload standpoint. I don't know. There are a ton of kind of complicating factors here, and I, I really just don't think I'm the person who... I don't feel like I feel confident in either direction, although I think on talent it would it wouldn't be the craziest thing in the world and and from like a fan perspective, I'd love to watch it happen. I'm sure Rhett louder would would love that well I mean the white sox took Chris sale thirteenth overall hmm. in twenty ten and he he didn't go straight to the big leagues he spent well he spent like the blink of an eye mm-hmm. in the minor leagues, but by the end of twenty ten he was pitching big league innings in the White Sox bullpen. Yeah. Uh, Mike and even Leak, like Garrett Mike... Crochet is another one recently. Yeah, Crochet. There's been other guys. What's the, uh, what was it, Finnegan, who was pitching, mm-hmm. what, in the College World Series? But <laughs> and, then, and then in the playoffs, too. But I also don't think, like, if you want Rhett Louder up, I, I don't, like, for Crochet, I think his stuff makes sense to come out of the pen. I don't think Louder is a pitcher that you would want to come up and pitch out of the bullpen. Like he doesn't, he doesn't have the sort of elite fastball and elite breaking ball. Just come in and throw those, and don't worry about the command. He's like a command-oriented, deep arsenal pitcher, who I would think you'd get the most value out of him in a starting role. And there are less, even less instances of pitchers coming up quickly in a starting role. So I don't know how that changes your calculus if it does at all, or if you think he'd be fine in a in a bullpen role. I I, I mean I think he, I would certainly long term want him to be a starter. I think that's obviously where his value is maximized. I think he could do really well in a bullpen role too. I think I don't know the if, Reds bullpen enough to know if he's like a better option than someone who's throwing harder with a better breaking ball in a one inning capacity. I mean even just the back end of their rotation could yeah. potentially be <laughs> upgrade and just I mean Mike Leake, he didn't go to the big leagues the same year that he was drafted. But he got he was drafted in 2000, 2009 first round pick, and in two thousand ten, I think he pitched in the Arizona Fall League in two thousand nine, and then in two thousand ten, just skipped the minor leagues, went right to right to the rotation. So yeah, he I don't, nine, I don't, I don't think this is a likely outcome. I don't think this is a likely scenario, but I also don't think it's it would be an unprecedented mm-hmm. situation, and it's something that if I'm the Reds, I'm at least you know, tossing around the room as an idea of, Hey, could this be a, could this happen? Yeah, no, I think, I think that's interesting. I think, I think Ty Floyd honestly has stuff that would maybe play better in a bullpen considering he just has more typical fastball life and shape that would make sense in a bullpen capacity. Um, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see what they do with them. Any other teams that, that you want to talk through? I have a couple more I could do. Um, just depends Who else? on how many yeah. you go through. Who else did you like? Uh, I like the Rays quite a bit. Let me pull up their draft class. But, I mean, starting with Braden Taylor at 19, who I thought could have easily been a perfectly viable pick at 6 overall, is a pretty strong start. Um, again, I'm interested in, in the rationale between or, or behind selecting him as a shortstop when I think he's like probably a third baseman or a second baseman. Uh, Adrian Santana was always one of my favorite High school shortstops in the class, like we just talked about, he's probably one of the higher likelihood players to actually stick at the position. 
And then Colton Ledbetter and Trey Morgan are both really fascinating profiles who have solid hitting ability, solid athleticism, but questions for impact. Like Trey Morgan went where I thought he should have gone. I'm unsure of the profile overall, but I think it's a really fun one to watch. I was interested that the Rays went with a lot of hit over power players this year after doing the opposite a year ago. I really don't think the Rays have some sort of like one type of player they like. It seems like they're they're willing to go for a number of different demographics. I like them taking TJ Nichols in the sixth round. He has really impressive stuff and below average control. So I want all those pitchers to be drafted by Tampa Bay. I think Garrett Edwards, if he didn't get hurt, they took Garrett Edwards in the 11th round in LSU, right-handed pitcher. If he didn't get hurt uh, this season, he could have gone significantly higher. He has really impressive stuff. Um, So their top five hitters are really interesting to me. I mean, Hunter Haas is the one that I didn't mention, who is a fourth rounder. Uh, He's been an everyday shortstop for Texas A&M, has good defensive actions, good approach at the plate. Like All of their players here have pretty solid batting eyes get on base at a decent clip. And then you kind of question like, okay, what is the the power going to be? So I think there's like a similar profile for this year. You could maybe tease out, but really this one comes down to Taylor Santana and TJ Nichols in the sixth round as like an, a player. I really like for Tampa Bay specifically. Um, I'm curious to see what Taylor is going to sign for at pick 19 I would imagine it's an overslot deal, but there have been we've been surprised uh, about what the the deals have been in the first round for some players prior to this. But I think outside of the top five, if I were to bet on any player having like a lengthy career, it would be Braden Taylor for me, just because I think his offensive approach is so advanced. He knows the strike zone so well. He consistently walks more than he strikes out. He's he's never uncomfortable. His, his baseball instincts overall, I think, are really impressive. He's going to get the absolute most of really what's probably an average tool set across the board. Savvy base runner, despite not being a burner. Like, he seems to get pretty ideal angles off the bat and maximizes the raw power that he has. He, he backswings the ball and he pulls it consistently in the air. I just think he does a lot of things really, really well as a baseball player. Uh, and I like players like that. So the Rays is another one for me that I'm a fan of. Yeah, I look at Taylor where he was drafted, 19, seen a couple of the college hitters who were drafted ahead of him, Wilkin mm. at 18, Jacob Gonzalez for the White Sox at 15. Yeah. I'd rather have Braden Taylor than mm. those guys. So it's not like I don't think, oh, they got, uh, you know, Braden Taylor should have been a top, you know, five, seven overall pick or anything like that. So, mm. um, but I do like him a little bit more than some of the guys who went ahead of him. Yeah, and again, it'll be it'll be interesting once all these players in the first round are signed and we can kind of line up the board based on bonuses because that is an element you always have to keep in mind for, for the MLB draft. It's not as straightforward. Uh, and I guess the last team that I liked, I had the Rays, or excuse me, the, the Twins written down here. Um, let me pull up their draft class. But I think this one is, again... A few personal cheese balls later in the draft and also just playing it straight up, taking Walker Jenkins at five. I think that is the smart move here. Um, there was a lot of, of talk about the Twins maybe going with an off-the-board off the selection at five. Did they want a college player? Did they want a, a college pitcher there? Did they want someone who, who really just 
popped on their model at five. But no, they took Walker Jenkins. I think they got the I, final. I hope, I hope Walker Jenkins popped on their model. Otherwise, maybe yeah. get rid of that model. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There were some rumors about the the Twins liking either Jacob Gonzalez or, or Jacob Wilson quite a bit because those two players um, really graded out well on the model. But I agree. Like, <laughs> I hope Walker Jenkins grades out well on the model too. I would be happy with Jenkins at pick number three in this class. So getting him at five is solid. I love Charlie Soto as an athlete, the pure stuff, the physicality he has. So getting him in the supplemental first, I think is perfect on talent. Um, and then later in the draft, getting Tanner Hall in the fourth round, getting Dylan Kestad in the fifth round. The Twins have done a pretty good job, I think, with pitchers post-day one recently. I hope they continue that. I think Hall and Kestad are two guys who are pretty advanced pitchers um, with maybe not the most premium velocity right now. So if you can add a little bit more power to both of these players, I think everything is only going to tick up. I mean, Kestad was always... One of my favorite pitchers in the high school class. I just really think he has a great feel for pitching. Mixes in four solid pitches. Maybe the changeup is the one you're going to have to project a little bit more on just because he hasn't thrown it quite as much. Lacked a little bit of feel for that compared to the fastball slider curveball. But I think chance for above average control with him. And then Tanner Hall, maybe plus control with him. One of the better changeups in the class. Just a consistent go-to secondary for him that tunnels nicely with the fastball has really impressive tumbling action. So those are two arms I liked further down. I think Paul Sean Pasqualato, a right-hander out of California and Ty Langenberg out of Iowa to start day three. Those are interesting arms as well. They've got a number of their college arms signed already on day three. I don't know as much about guys like Xander Hamilton, Spencer Bengard, Anthony Silvas, but again, just given what the Twins have been able to do with some of their further down the board arms, I'm curious to see what they're able to do with those. And I guess Ross Dunn is maybe one of the more famous players uh, in this kind of back range for the Twins with impressive pure stuff. Hasn't ever really been a consistent strike thrower so if they can figure out how to get him over the plate more that one could be interesting but yeah just a lot of really interesting names and i haven't even talked about brandon winnaker who was their third round pick and is kind of a freak athletically i mean he's been mid 90s on the mound he showed some of the best raw power at the mlb draft combine a few weeks ago I'm not sure exactly where he's going to wind up defensively or what the hit tool is going to be like. I have pretty serious concerns about just the hitting ability and contact overall. The swing has a lot of moving parts. It's really long levers. Um, But he's a pretty special athlete with really loud tools. Um, So, yeah, I I think this is a really fun draft with a lot of different traits that, that you can get excited about for a lot of their players. I think they're very fortunate to have gotten the fifth overall pick in the lottery. Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> they were one of the... <laughs> like that made the... The A's are just pissed at the Twins right now, right? The A's were the big losers. The Twins were the big winners. You, And I think that's another reason that I just... At the end, I think the, the mock I had previously, I had Rhett Louder at five, and then I just went back to Jenkins because I, I just kept thinking, like, everyone has been talking about this as a five-player draft. They're picking at the back, like, I don't think you get cute there. You just take the player who's left over no matter who it is. And that's what they did. I don't know if Jenkins was the, the name they really wanted or if they just evaluated it as, okay, whoever's left, we're taking it. And that's who it happened to be. But yeah, I think that if you're in that spot, that's the right thing to do this year. 
Was there was there a draft that really had you scratching your head this year? Um, I, I, I have one. Let me ask you. Yeah, you, you the, give me yours. The, Let me scroll through. I'm sure there's one for me. Because they do yeah, such I, a I great job <laughs> that I don't under I didn't understand the Dodgers draft. I knew you were going to say the Dodgers. <laughs> and it's tough. it's like oh like oh yeah like I love the Tigers draft. Well yeah I like it when you're picking third overall. Right? It's a little easier <laughs> exactly. to like it than when your first pick is not until thirty six. Yeah, that's so, why like, I also like going to the Marlins first because they're at least a little bit further down. But yeah, yeah. So like, it's easy okay. to like Paul Skeens. <laughs> yeah, I get that. Oh yeah, great job by the Nationals drafting Dylan Cruz. Like. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah with the Dodgers so they didn't pick until 36 overall and then they drafted Kendall George a high school outfielder from Texas who is a good prospect you know little guy very little power mm-hmm. 80 runner he's like an and Enrique Bradfield in high school I think is a reasonable comp for him like similar yeah, profile maybe like Bradfield's bigger <laughs> him like they both have very questionable power output they're both like elite runners and defenders he's fun to watch just i mean he hits a ball on the ground and Mm -hmm. it's like this could be this could easily be an infield single he hits a ball into the just a little bit into the gap in the outfields and Mm -hmm. if the outfield doesn't take the exact right route could easily turn a single into a double Mm -hmm. he does make a lot of contact there's not a lot of swing and miss there like there are things to like about him i think we had him ranked where like 111 or, or something like that yeah i'll in pull the up PA the exact 500. ranking but he was very close to that range we had him 114 yeah 114 and i think after the at the press conference or somewhere where kendall george was being interviewed he was saying yeah i was surprised too because they told me it's it's an effect of basically they they told me they were going to draft me with the next pick. <laughs> yeah. So, so here's what clearly. I think happened with the Dodgers. I, I heard this from a couple of people and I'm, I think it makes a lot of sense if this is actually the case, but I heard a lot of the players they were targeting with that first pick went off the board right in front of them. Like there was a big run of players they liked. And so I think there are a couple elements here. When you're picking 36, you have to be a lot more reactive. They also are working with the, one of the smallest bonus pools, uh, I think they were, let me actually pull up the exact rank for them. They had the seventh smallest bonus pool in this draft with $7 million. And so I think they liked Kendall George. Players that maybe they were targeting first overall went in front of them. So they took a player they really still liked and wanted to get. I assume with the the thinking of underslotting him and then figuring out your board later... It's also harder to talk about the Dodgers because I don't have their official signings in at this point. So it's kind of hard to see how they were like financially moving around this draft class. But it does seem like one of those situations where they kind of got scooped early on. So they decided to go with a player they still liked on an underslot deal early. Just make sure they secured that player and figure out who who got to them later. But yeah, it is... You can I, just look at their picks though. It's like who who is the big guy who they're paying who's worth like the going under slot that far well the the obvious ones would be like like the high school players brady smith in the third round uh brian gonzalez garcia in the sixth round jaron elkins in the eighth round and like 
people probably won't like this because none of those guys are super prominent, super famous names. It's not like they, they got a Cameron Johnson um, down there with one of those later picks. I don't know if they even ever had the pool space to even consider a player like Cameron Johnson in the first place. But I do think that for the Dodgers especially, and I think for every team, we have to keep in mind that like they know all these players more. They have a lot better dope. And like once I heard, I didn't know about Jaron Elkins at all prior to this draft so him in the eighth round maybe people are not putting much stock in him but he really sounds like a pretty special athlete with tools um so if the dodgers have just just kind of found a sleeper with him that could be pretty exciting uh but yeah it, it is a draft class that you kind of scratch your head a little bit but i think more than any other organization the dodgers have earned a little bit of blind faith and that's kind of what i told some some dodgers fans who are asking me similar questions that you're bringing up like if you're going to trust any team, it feels like it has to be the Dodgers, given what they've done. So I'm willing to kind of just sit back and see what happens with a lot of these players. Yeah. I mean, I have, you know, no shortage of uh, praise that we've given the Dodgers over the years for their ability to draft and develop and all that. But it certainly seemed like even this draft, I'm sure the Dodgers are probably not like thrilled that, you know, George said that. <laughs> about like oh this clearly was not their plan a for <laughs> the draft like that yeah. clearly was not this clearly was not what they i mean how of, many teams are picking hoped. after even 10 are doing their plan a though like no one's doing their plan a uh, your plan a gets blown up <laughs> it seems like maybe even plan b was not <laughs> there well i i think them. also too like them getting so jake geloff as their second round pick we have Jake Geloff ranked pretty good. Again, I'm dealing with a bunch of tabs. So I'm trying to figure out where we had him ranked. We had him ranked 40. So so that represents pretty good value in the second round. But I also think that Jake Geloff is a player that both you and me, for whatever reason, we're just not on him as much as maybe some other people are. We, we don't like the power-oriented, like aggressive hitting, lower down the defensive spectrum profiles, and that's what he is. But they also seem to make the most out of players like this. And so I think, like, on talent, he's perfectly – it's a great value for the second round just in terms of, like, the consensus opinions of the industry. I mean, he is the career home run leader at Virginia. Like, there's there's clearly something there with Jake Geloff. But, yeah, I guess if you're out on Geloff, you think Kendall George is more of a second or third rounder at best and you just don't love some of the other pitchers, like an Eric Swan, kind of really heavy reliever risk. Wyatt Crowell was injured uh, as a left-handed pitcher in the fourth round. Like, if you're not really enthused with Dylan Campbell's projection or Joe Vetrano as a hitter, like I can see you not loving this class, but I also, I don't know. Like there are some interesting high school players that I don't know a ton of that I'm, I'm willing to be just wrong on and see what they become. Well, and that's the thing with, with their topic is that he was not like, sometimes we see, Oh, Evan Carter was, you know, more off the radar or, the Rays taking Xavier Isaac, like Xavier Isaac wasn't doing a whole bunch of showcases, wasn't a big player on the summer circuit. That's not the case with Kendall George. Like everybody saw him and saw him a lot. So this is not some like under the radar pop-up hideout type player. Yeah. This is just somebody who they... I mean, as he kind of said, <laughs> went pretty <laughs> aggressive to to take him with the 36th overall. And again, he's a good player. Just mm -hmm. it's the opportunity cost of what else could have been done with that pick. 
yeah. Well, I think if if there is a surprise player in this class, it's not going to be the top guy. It'll be some of the players further down. Um, again, really curious to see what the actual numbers are. Like, what what is Kendall George signing for here at pick number thirty six? If if you assumed he was he was the second rounder for the Dodgers, I would, I would imagine. If if it's not an underslot deal, like I have significantly more questions about this draft, but I feel pretty confident that it is going to be an underslot deal. Um, all right, any other teams that were confusing to you? I meant to be looking at other teams that that were a bit of a question mark for me, but I just got sucked into this conversation. So, um, that was that was really the big one for for me. Kind of like we talked about early at the show, there wasn't some like mm-hmm. glaring. Just like real stunning first round yeah. pick or, or anything like that this year. The ace was interesting to me because they took Jacob Wilson on a pretty significant underslot deal. And the player they seem to have given that money to is Steven Echeverria. I mean, what are your thoughts on Echeverria there in the third round for $3 million? I think I would have preferred another player that was available. Like if you, if you could have gotten Joey Volchko or Cameron Johnson there. And I think, I don't know this for sure, but I would imagine their asking prices were somewhere around that range. I think that would have made me feel a little bit better about their class. Um, they also took Miles Naylor at 39. I like Naylor. I don't know that I would have loved him in the supplemental first. Ryan Lasko is more of like a defense over offense profile in the second round. Like that's one where I, I kind of wish that more of their savings went to either other high school pitchers or a different profile later on but i guess high school righties or high school pitchers in general are like the easiest player to save money for and pay later just given yeah i like steven echeverria quite a bit and then at the same time seeing three million dollars i was like whoa okay that's Mm -hmm. more than i would have uh anticipated for him i think he had uh probably a lot of leverage in his negotiation i know he seems like it was pretty hard commit to florida but yeah we um, had him as like identified as someone who sounded like a difficult sign he was a florida commit we had him ranked 73 so i mean i don't think it's crazy out of the question for a player in this range to get paid like that but you did have volchko and cam johnson on the board here i mean maybe those two just were asking for more money and it's as simple as that but yeah i don't know yeah i mean i could see you know uh, you know having echeverria over over Volchko, him versus oh, Cam Johnson. Oh, that'd be a tougher one. I, I think I'd still <laughs> stick with Cam Johnson. But yeah. I mean, Echeverria was definitely a trending up arm. He's young for the class. Like, I, I think Johnson has a better, a little bit louder now stuff. Although, like, Echeverria stuff is pretty good too, but there's a lot of good projection indicators there with Echeverria, mm-hmm. and his stuff is already ticking up i think he's still 17 like there's there's a lot of things to like there i'll be curious to see once all of the bonus numbers are in like how the high school pitching bonuses end up lining up yeah same same with me i I don't think there's just kind of scanning through i don't think there's really another team that jumps out as like shocking in, in one direction or another um but i think we did hit on all the teams that i really liked this year i guess do you have any other ones that that you like that we haven't talked about or or i guess any other teams um draft halls that you think are notable yeah nothing that jumped out as like oh crazy crazy Mm -hmm. good uh to me a lot of them just seemed like yeah like this seems like it was 
fair for where they mm-hmm. took a lot yeah. of their their players and it just sort of gets into oh yeah i like the teams that picked higher than the teams that picked later so <laughs> absolutely <laughs> so we we've got another question i want to get to here from prospect nuggets on twitter who asks who are the overslot guys drafted after round five who are names to watch I think this is a fun question. Again, just considering how the MLB draft works, there's always some players drafted further down the board who are getting paid big money. Uh, that'll be more fun than a lot of the underslot guys who go in front of them. A few names that I ID'd who I think are interesting are right-hander uh, Barrett Kent, who the Angels took in the eighth round. Shortstop Boston Barrow, who the Mets took in the eighth round. Uh, outfielder Isaiah Drake, who the Braves took in the fifth round. And then shortstop AJ Ewing, who the Mets took in the fourth round. Uh, or, or right after the fourth round as a comp pick. That one is technically cheating for your question, but I know that Ewing is a player that Ben specifically likes, so I wanted to bring him up as well for this. But those are, at least right now, as as we have kind of official deals in, some of the players in that range on overslot deals who I think are interesting. And we can, I guess let's start with... We can start with any of these players, really, Ben. It doesn't matter which direction we go. But those were kind of the names that jumped out to me. Um, I, Drake, I guess, is particularly interesting because the Braves need some infusion of offensive talent in their system. And he's really toolsy, uh, a really impressive athlete, good runner. Really impressed me at the combine, both in-game and in the workouts for his swing. Uh, I know the the kind of the hit tool and the approach was maybe the biggest question with Isaiah Drake, but... I was pretty impressed with the admittedly small sample of ABs that I got for him very late in the process. And he signed for, let me pull this up. He signed for basically 750000 in the fifth round, which is uh, quite a bit more than the 367000 slot value. Um, yeah, any of these guys you want to you talk about? Yeah, yeah, you mentioned AJ Ewing. I liked him. I like him for the Mets. Um and not a guy who was like, you know, a big break the bank bonus either. Um, wasn't like a millions of dollars for him. I think there's some left-handed hit ability there that I like. Um, still fairly wiry. There's some ability to drive the ball to uh, there. It's not just like a, a singles hitter, but a uh, really good back control, pretty good swing from the left side, some hitterish tendencies there that I liked. And then the, I mean, I don't know if it's a going to be a good pick or not, but one of the more interesting ones to me was the white Sox getting George Wolkow, uh, yeah. who was a seventh round pick signing for what was, I think in a million, I think it's gonna be a million dollars yeah, million, for him. Million dollars. And he's interesting because he reclassed from 2024 to 2023. He, I mean, does not, he's six foot seven, like 240 pounds. Like I remember seeing him as, uh, you know, right after his sophomore year at a showcase. And he obviously stood out just physically Mm -hmm. right away for such a big, guy with long arms it's there's i mean there's always going to be some length to the swing when your levers are just that long but it's not a super super long swing either there's definitely some components there to like and then there's just obvious power there i mean it might be 
70 raw power could end up being 80 raw power by the time he just is in his physical prime and then the question mark with him has just been swing and miss he's he struggled um on you know the summer circuit with strikeouts so there's definitely a lot of risk there but uh big power it's probably gonna be he does have a good arm could be right field maybe left field maybe ultimately just ends up at first base with his size certainly has plenty of power for the position a lot of risk with the pure hitting ability but again he's still 17 like if you know mm-hmm. eric batanti we were talking about if, if we put george wolkow back into the 2024 class he'd be right in that mix with the top 10 high school players in the country for 2024 yeah. and then to see him just get drafted by his hometown team with the white Sox, i'm sure made it even more appealing for mm-hmm. for him so that's one where I don't know if I like the pick or not, but like there's there's a lot of things that could go right there, and if it does, yeah. it's just like a fun hometown pick for the White that Sox. pick. I also like more too because Brandon Winokur got five hundred thousand dollars more, and I think they're similar talents with similar questions and, and sort of similar tools as well. So the fact that you got George Wolkow, who we we ranked around ten spots higher for $500,000 less in the seventh round compared to Winokur getting 1.5 in the third. Um, like if we're looking at comparable talents or similar phylum of players, I think the dollars make a lot of sense, or at least I would rather have Wolko for a million than Winokur for 1.5 if I was like comparing those two deals. Um, the other one I wanted to talk about was Barrett Kent. We had him ranked right at 100 in the class. Um, so getting him again for a million dollars in the eighth round from the angels, I like that. I mean, he's, he doesn't jump out in any specific way compared to a number of pitchers in this range, but, but this is the range of high school pitcher where a lot of these guys just wind up going to school and becoming top two round picks, uh, with solid performance. He was signed out of an Arkansas commit has solid stuff across the board. He's been up to 96, 97, really physical and athletic six foot three 208 pounds um, comes from an athletic background his father played college football at texas tech kent himself also played football basketball golf track so i think there's still a lot of upside potential here for him as he gets onto the mound there's really no question marks i have with the delivery it's pretty simple and easy pretty direct um, pretty clean arm action Again, there's nothing that like jumps out as like a no doubt plus pitch, but I just think he does everything really well um, with solid control on top of that. So just a very well-rounded high school pitcher that I think can wind up being maybe an impactful type as he kind of continues to add some more touch and feel to his game, maybe sharpens up some of the secondaries a little bit. But I, I think that's a good value um, for the Angels in the eighth round. So that's one of the other ones that I would point out. Um, a couple other names. Chase Jaworski was an overslot deal in the fifth round uh, to the Astros. I mentioned Boston Barrow. Christian Opper is an interesting one. He was a draft and follow from last year's class, signs for slightly overslot in the fifth round. We've already talked about Dylan Kestad, who meets these classifications. I think those are the biggest ones, at least that we have now. There are going to be some other overslot players that just haven't signed yet as we record this podcast, but but those are some interesting names to keep in mind. Um, let's see here. We can either do some more questions. We can top 
talk about our new top 100 list or we can get into the 2024 um top 100 list that we recently came out with ben which which direction do you want to head here yeah are you all in on 2024 now after nope. uh not at all no? not at all i wish i could run back 2023 i think <laughs> the i think it's typical for people to be excited about next year's draft class after spending a full year with the previous one everyone's kind of ready to jump into fresh names and and find out the new players and there's a lot of new car energy this time of year typically that has really not been the case in 2024 i think it's probably because 2023 was such a good draft class um so even if we were just coming into an average year maybe we would have been a little bit disappointed just because 2023 was so good um by pretty much everyone that you talk to but it seems like 2024 at least right now it looks like a bit of a down class there's no clear top player it was kind of painful picking a 1-1 in this class there's no obvious top name on the college side there's no obvious top name on the high school side it more seems like kind of a big group of players who make sense but at this point i'll feel like more of middle of the first round talents um than legitimate top five types maybe that'll change as we kind of evaluate these players throughout the summer throughout the fall we get another spring season maybe some of these college pitchers who seem reliever ish will take a step forward and kind of turn into middle rotation upside starter types maybe some of these college hitters with real approach and swing and miss questions will uh, take the chase davis route and improve in that capacity maybe connor griffin will just take a step forward and just impress everyone all year I don't know. I just feel like every single player in this class has real question marks. Whereas like last year, we felt pretty confident in Dylan Cruz and we felt pretty confident in Chase Dolander and we felt pretty confident in Walker Jenkins and Max Clark being like elite top of the class players. And I just am not sure we have that in 2024, but am I being too pessimistic? Yeah, I think you look at our 2024 draft board with the top 100 players on a college side you don't have players who are, um, you know, your premium position guys. I mean, you have Vance Honeycutt, certainly, uh, but also comes with a lot of uh, hit risk as well. Oh, the rest of it is a lot of guys with some, you know, pretty significant defensive uh, question marks or shortcomings on the college side. And then for the high school players, yeah, there's there, there's no Max Clark or Walker Jenkins type talent this year. And then on the pitching side, you know, this time a year ago, we had Noble Meyer and Thomas White were our top two high school pitchers in the country. And I don't think there's a pitcher in the 2024 high school class who's at the level of where those guys were at a year ago. I do think there's like an interesting depth of arms on the high school side for like projection type arms where I'm sure some of those guys and and, you know there's they're good players now and some of them will start to pop and take the next step forward either by the end of the summer or during the spring I'm sure we'll get reports of guys taking a a significant leap forward but uh, you know even then we only had one high school pitcher go in the first round of the draft this year so um, so it's certainly a, a group of players that teams are, are a little bit more wary mm-hmm. of. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think part of that is just that there are so many hitters that 
people liked that it pushes the high school pitchers out. And if we have a class in 24 where there just aren't as many hitters people fall in love with, you, you become more willing to take a risk on an upside like high school pitcher that maybe you don't like, like they're just not, there were a lot of very safe profiles. You could also be really excited about in 2023. And at least right now, that doesn't seem to be the case in 2024. Like all of the hitters you feel comfortable with, you probably have defensive questions or profile questions. There are a lot of corner types, first baseman, college, second baseman. You don't know if they can play shortstop. I mean, you mentioned Honeycutt who probably has the best like overall profile and tool set in the class. He's also never hit over 300, had down year in 2023 compared to uh, a very strong 2022 season. He did cut his strikeout rate, uh, but I think there are probably still pure hit questions. It's weird to think about a guy going 1-1 who's never hit 300 in college. That just doesn't happen often. I mean, those are guys we talk about as like, do you want them in the first round? I mean, the top pitchers on the college side all have really significant reliever questions. Brody Brecht, uh, the right-hander out of Iowa, has really elite pure stuff. Significant strikes questions. I think the same is true for Chase Burns. Maybe less so with the strikes with him. His his strike-throwing track record in college is pretty solid, but I know there are scouts who think he's probably a reliever at the next level. He relieved in college this year uh, with Tennessee, and maybe that's part of the reason that he, he transferred out and is now going to go to Wake Forest. Uh, but even further down, you've got guys like Hagen Smith, who has the electric stuff from the left side, but real strikes questions. Um, Michael Massey has some of the best pure stuff, but is a full time was a full time reliever with Wake Forest. Like if he goes into the rotation and proves he can start and still has that invisible fastball and and loud slider, I could see him moving up. But there's really not a single player in the class, I don't think, that just doesn't have a real serious question mark. Like Tommy White and and Jack Caglione. They're probably two of the more famous players in the class at this point, but Tommy White might be a first baseman. He's really aggressive with his swing decisions. How does that translate to pro ball? I think Jack is pretty raw on both sides, although his tools are obviously really electric, a lefty that gets up to 98, a player who just led the country in home runs and has massive raw power. But again, like there are real strikes questions for him as a pitcher. There's real approach questions for him as a hitter. I got to see him a few times in person and the swing is just really long at times. So like all of these players have real question marks. So maybe that makes it more fun to cover because there's like, there's an opening for any of these players to just move up the board and establish themselves at the top. Like maybe Seaver King is that player. Maybe it's just Travis Bazana who seems really twitchy and athletic. I mean, maybe he can move to shortstop, but I haven't heard great things about his shortstop defense. So just like, like you could just pull up a ton of questions where I don't know. What was the question with Dylan Cruz a year ago? Like, is he a center fielder or a right fielder? Outside of that, you felt pretty confident about the tools across the board, his SEC production, the power, the the approach. Like, we just don't have that this year. And maybe maybe a year from now, we'll be talking about someone who has kind of established themselves. But I don't have an obvious player to point to and say, this is the guy who's like the clear 1-1. And for, for me, Nick Kurtz is a player I just felt the most confident in about like pure hitting ability, power potential, approach at the plate, athleticism, and he's a first baseman. So, I mean, we've had first basemen in the past who were kind of the consensus top players, Spencer Torkelson. But I don't know if that gives you a lot of excitement about the overall draft class when that's the case. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned a lot of Wake Forest guys. <laughs> Nick, <laughs> Nick Kurtz, Chase Burns now, Seaver King. I mean, we got Josh Hartle, Michael yeah. Massey, I think you mentioned too. That should be yeah. a nice year for for wake but yeah yeah i think they're gonna have no issues reloading and i think that 
like if you want to be optimistic about this class, like maybe Wake is the the thing you point to because I do think Nick Kurtz is was the better the best pure hitter on that team, and they just had Brock Wilkin go 18th overall. Like that, that's maybe your uh, the area to be really optimistic about. Like, but even then, I don't know how optimistic I'm really being there. I mean, I, I really like Derek Curiel. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious to see how they do as far if there's any development changes with Chase Burns going to Wake Forest mm-hmm. this year compared to where he was at uh, this past year. You, you mentioned Travis Bazana too. I'm sure you'll be stunned. I like the kind of smallerish uh, uh, left-handed hitter, but he is another very hitterish player. He's hitting well on the Cape this summer. Um, having a big, big summer with wood bats, um, mm-hmm. good, good strike zone judgment, really good back control. Uh, there's a little bit yeah. of power in there too. Like you said, more second base than shortstop, but uh, you know, we have them. Look, we have number two on our rankings, and probably yeah. most years would not be the case. But he's somebody who, at least from the college side, I think there's there's a lot of a lot of things to like there that kind of you know, maybe fit with like what like the Matt Shaw's, Tommy Troy's, yeah, like that yeah. That I think group of the world. I think this this all these players fit much more in that group and and not in the top five from last year. And another name I'll mention here is JJ Weatherholt, who mm. maybe had one of the best offensive seasons in college baseball a year ago with West Virginia. He hit four forty nine, five seventeen, seven eighty two. I really strongly considered him as a Golden Spikes semifinalist with with my vote. He hit. 16 homers, doubled 23 times, and also stole 35 bags. I think, like, the speed and the defense uh, is kind of a question that I have with him just because when I saw him with with USA Baseball, he was nursing a hamstring injury and wasn't really moving around uh, that well. Like, he homered homered multiple times with USA and would hit his home run and kind of trot down first base and then just walk back to the dugout. He wasn't playing uh, defense much when I saw him. like an intra squad kind of game in in scrimmages, yeah, in scrimmages, yeah. He would he would, he would homer, kind of watch the ball fly, <laughs> and and walk back. So I didn't get a great uh, read on like what he is defensively or as a runner. The fact that he stole that many ba- bases makes me like want to see him more in the field. So um, I'm curious to both watch video and see him in in games that matter in the future, and, and like what the what the thinking is on his defensive profile but in terms of a hitter like he has really strong hands he seems to have a really advanced approach at the plate i think it's hit on base and power he really doesn't strike out that much uh and i was kind of surprised with how loud the ball comes off his bat he he really barreled the baseball for me pretty consistently and he's smaller but he's he's pretty physical and well built and strong like he's listed at 510 190 right now it wouldn't surprise me if he was even a little bit heavier than that but him and Kurtz, I guess the, our top three guys, which maybe it makes sense that they're our top three guys. They're the most intriguing, like pure hitters for me in this class. Even though, I, again, I think guys like Tommy White and Jack Caglione are probably more famous in this class right now than them. What about on the high school side? Because now you've seen these guys at PDP. Mm-hmm. You were there at PG National. Is anybody caught your attention either either at the top of the list or somebody who's maybe a little deeper down who who caught your eye this, yeah this i think the the pitchers have been more impressive to me and i think that's probably a function of just the evaluation opportunities that i've had like both the high school all-star game 
and PG National, I think mm. it's a lot easier for pitchers to shine in those events just because the hitters, I mean, you're waiting forever to take your next AB. It's always a new pitcher. You don't get a chance to kind of see a guy multiple times, get into a rhythm, and just see pitches consistently like you do in games. Um, so it's always a little risky to to kind of put your entire opinion out there on a hitter at these events. I think it's, it's easier to get a, a read of tools, athleticism, like physicality for the hitters, and then kind of um, – just let them play throughout the summer before you really develop a feel for them as hitters. I mean, we talked about Derek Curiel in this podcast. He's a guy that I've actually been able to see more than some of the other hitters in this class. And I've always seen him perform. Although I say that, and I think the last two events that I've seen him have been probably his, his worst that I've seen personally. I know he's been dealing with a little bit of a hand injury. Um, so I'm willing to excuse him for that, but uh, Pedro Morlando is interesting, a guy with a ton of power. He hit really well in the high school game, which I just said is, is typically hard to do. Um, some of the pitchers, like Carson Wiggins, who we have quite a bit further down the board at 60, he's shown really impressive, pure stuff. And I know the strikes are the concern for him, but in the limited outings that I've seen him, he's actually been around the zone a decent bit. I think he's got a chance to be a lot better than his brother, uh, Jackson Wiggins, coming out of high school. Um, so he's a fun one. Just kind of scanning through our list here. Uh, Cam Caminiti, I like him more on the mound than as a hitter at this point. I'm curious, like, how you see yeah. him. He, he was a guy who, it, like, at PG National, just came out of his hand really easy from the left side. I think the swing is a little bit long, so I prefer him to get on the bump. But I know he likes to hit, and he's probably going to continue doing that moving forward. Um, who, yeah, he's a, yeah, he's a reclass from... 2024 mm-hmm. he's a 16 year old uh left-handed pitcher up to 96 i think his future is probably on the mound as well <laughs> yeah owen hall was another guy right-handed pitcher his combination of like stuff fastball velocity feel for the breaking ball and just overall strikes and, and pitchability when i've seen him he's also been impressive i do see i think i agree with you especially after watching pg national and, and maybe it's just a case that the hitters are just down, and so you're naturally going to be drawn towards more of the pitchers. But I do think they're, the depth of pitching in this class is maybe the one area you could point to and say, okay, there are a lot of arms with stuff, with exciting upside. Like I think that is the case on both the college and high school classes, even if there's not like a clear-cut front-of-the-rotation pitcher in this class like Paul Skeens, which I'm not expecting a Paul Skeens in, in every draft class. But, yeah, it, it seems more pitcher-heavy overall this year. Yeah, I think uh, one of the pitchers who really stood out to me was Tegan Coons, right-handed pitcher from Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. He's a Tennessee commit. Um, saw him, she's probably saw him two years ago. Just like a skinny 6'2 kid at the time, but was, you know, touching 91, but could really, really spin a breaking ball. Uh, still pretty skinny kid. He's about 6'3 now. Uh, pretty sound delivery. Uh, he was, he's been up to 95. Just you look at his arm speed. There's still more physical projection there for him to throw harder. I think he'll be an upper nineties arm. I, you know, I don't know when potentially uh, hopefully for his case before the, the draft comes. Um, but then the separator with him is a, a big time breaking ball. It's, you know, 28, 29 flashing 3000 RPM breaking ball it's going to be a big swing and miss pitch for him and then he started he whipped out a change up at pdp 
that just faded away and away and away from a left-handed hitter. That was pretty impressive. He's got a splitter too. So he's just, he just has really good ability to manipulate a lot of his secondary offerings. And I think it's, you know, it's already a, a fastball that's up to 95. And I think there's more in the tank. So he's, we have him as the top, uh, well, I'll say top pure pitcher in the country right now for the high mm-hmm. school class. Like, you know, Connor Griffin gets on the mound and, uh, Bryce Rayner gets on the mound a, a little bit, um, but I think those guys are really more more position players. So he's one guy that that jumped out to me. Um, and then I, I think another guy who could jump a little bit more. We we already jumped him uh, kind of into the back of the first round mix right now is Charlie Bates, uh, left handed hitting shortstop out of yeah. California. He's a Stanford. He looked really good on commit. both sides at, at PG National. He was impressive. He barreled the ball and defensive actions looked really impressive too. Yeah. Yeah. Good actions. Very light on his feet. Smooth at, at shortstop. Plus runner. A lot of bats of ball. Uh, in games, it's more contact oriented, but he showed some surprising power in BP. He's about six, six foot, six one. Um, there's some strength projection left there so i don't know that like i think the more teams see him and then maybe see some of the other question marks of the players we we still have uh ahead of them who might just have louder tools right now um i, I could see him jumping ahead um as a you know shortstop who looks mm-hmm. like has a, a good chance to stick at the position uh, makes a lot of contact, a left-handed hitter. You know, if the power keeps trending up, he's somebody I could see making uh, a jump up this list as as the draft gets closer. Yeah, the one thing I do think is is pretty a pretty safe bet this year is that I think this list is going to have a significant amount of changes in movement because I, I just think it's wide open. Like there there doesn't seem to be a tier of players that are locked in at any range in this class and so there's just more opportunity for players to move up the board with good performances or jumps and stuff um improved pitches better command like i would be very surprised if this list remained consistent over the next year so i think that that's probably true in general of of any draft list we could look back and at other years and, and see what the movement actually was but i feel confident that this list will have more movement at the top than 2023 did a year ago Oh yeah, yeah. There's a uh, some wide open race for not just number one, but just even being in that first round mix or, or day one mix yeah. right now. Absolutely, I think so. Which in in some ways makes it more fun to cover. Like like there's just a lot more unknown and uncertainty in, in movement, so you kind of have to be on top of it the whole year just to see which players are performing, who's who's backing up. But uh, yeah, I guess in that sense it'll be fun. But if you are, <laughs> if you maybe jumped in as the 2023 class for your first year where you're seriously following um, not all classes look like the 2023 class did. So um, I guess I'm curious to see how this group is evaluated in our annual scouting director polling um, where we have scouting directors grade the class out. This will also be the first year where we really don't have the COVID wrinkles uh, in any large capacity. All those players who were impacted in 2020 just had their junior seasons um, and obviously the bulk of the college class comes from the, the junior um, group. So we're probably beyond the sort of artificially inflated depth on the college side, even though some of those guys will still be around us as college seniors. 
Um, but yeah, this is probably a bit of a reset in terms of draft talent. And I wonder if this will be the first year where, because I think the last three drafts, the industry is graded out as as average or better. I wonder if this gets a, a below average grade or, or what. You know what I was thinking too, is that I think that the impact of that 2020 COVID season is going to have an impact even further out into future draft classes as well. And in particular, the 2026 class. Because so? so the 2020 draft, when that, when that draft got shortened to five rounds, we knew that it was going to have uh, second order effects of propping up the 2023 draft because it's only a five-round draft, so a lot of players who normally would have gotten drafted out of out of either you know college or, or especially high school ended up going to college, right? Like Dylan Cruz didn't get an opportunity to kind of you know <clears throat> rebound in yes. in the spring. He ends up at LSU, uh, and you know obviously pulls his name out of the draft entirely and mm-hmm. i think just overall overall that helped the quality of college baseball and it helped the caliber of the 2023 draft as well what we i think maybe didn't anticipate or just you know couldn't necessarily have known at the time was that the high school class was also going to be particularly strong so mm-hmm. you have you have a 2023 draft that is now stronger than usual i would say on the college side and in part because of some second order effects of the 20 shortened 2020 draft from the covid year boosting that up but then you have it it's even better because of the 2023 high school class being so strong Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So now we're seeing, and it's not unusual that talented high school players end up getting to campus, but I think this year there's there's a whole bunch of really good high school players who are getting to college this year uh, and who will be now, you know, like we mentioned, Rock Chalowski and Cam Johnson, but like you can go pretty deep down the BA 500 and fine, mm-hmm. and even some guys who didn't make the list, probably in part just because our, our list ends up tilting a little college heavy. Anyway, that's that's more who the teams are, are focusing on, especially yeah. with the... I think the industry would tell you that our list is, is high school heavy. <laughs> so it's interesting that depending on who you ask, it would be one way or the other. Well, yeah, I mean, the, but they're well, yeah, exactly like their focus is so much more on the college mm-hmm. players who they actually are going to be able to sign given yeah. not necessarily the preferences of the scouts themselves, but just the, the, the way the system leverage. Yeah. Yeah. The way the system works and who you're able to pay and all that. Mm-hmm. So if, if there's a lot more players than usual who are, you know, ta- more talented players than usual who are getting to campus just because the 2023 draft class ended up being, mm-hmm so strong partly from just a strong 23 high school class partly from uh, you know a kind of a covid inflation on the college side that's going to have a third order effect of making the 2026 class 
uh, a stronger draft potentially than usual. Mm. And like, you know, I don't want to be like the cliche of what we're, you know, oh, always looking forward and saying the next year's draft is going to be <laughs> the one. To oh, I think we've solidly avoided that that cliche on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but but from like the early looks I've had at some of the 2026 high school players, like there's some pretty good, pretty good players <laughs> out there. I mean, yeah, way a I ways think... away. But it, the 2026 draft could be one to to circle as okay. a stronger than usual one. I would, I think I would be a little surprised if the high school players from this year created a significantly strong impact on 2026. Like if the 2026 class is good, just because the high school class that year is really good. That's one thing. But I, I do think that a lot of the best high school players this year were picked. Now, again, I, I guess the best available board I'm looking at right now is a little deceptive because there are some players who were picked in the 15 to 20 round range who aren't going to be signed, but like, I don't know how much better the depth of high school players once you get out of the like 150 range on the BA 500 is any like more significantly different than any year. Like, like I think generally the elite high school players from every draft class get picked. And then there are a lot of really talented players who go to college. Some of those guys will wind up being good. Some will wind up not living up to expectations. And then there'll be players who, who kind of were under the radar types in high school, like Wyatt Langford who wind up being a lot better. So I think I would be more convinced of like 2026 being good just because that high school class is maybe shaping up to have some elite talents. Um, but I think the the things you mentioned about like the college players pushing more high school players this year is interesting and, and something to keep in mind. Um, but I hope we get to a point where we can just put COVID behind us entirely at some point. <laughs> I don't know when that'll be. Maybe maybe that'll never be the case, but. Oh, I, I, yeah. <laughs> what... Uh... Did you want to talk the the new top 100 we've got for the yeah. the minor league? Yeah, prospects? let's do that because I was I was really only involved in in getting the draft guys on, and then I had to kind of dip for PG National stuff and other things I was working on. But yeah, we have the draftees. At least we added draftees for the top 100 list, and then I think the the process is going to be draftees for individual team top 30s would post signing deadline. Is that how we're doing it? I think probably after the trade deadline will end up. There's not like a great way to do it, unfortunately. I mean, the the outcome we decided on was all right. We'll add the players. We'll add draft picks to the top 100 because we are 99 percent certain those players are signing. And if not, we can take one out. But with the draft picks, it's like there's a little bit more uncertainty as we get from mm -hmm. like a team top 30 like are they going to sign this 11th round pick or even this you know seventh round pick in some cases like most of the guys in the top 10 rounds will sign but it, it just i think the number now is like it's nice higher than 98 percent. but yeah especially when there are like some high upside high school players on day three who probably would rank on a top 30 if they were signed but you just can't have significant confidence that they will be signed in that range like it, it gets trickier um but at least we can talk through the guys in the top 100 and kind of where they landed uh so yeah i don't know how do you how do you want to go about it you want to, are there any players i guess non-draftee that you want to start with or do you think we should start with just where the draftees were added because i was very adamant to put these top five guys very high on this list and i think 
uh, to to the prospect team's credit, you guys you guys have them pretty high. I mean, all of the five, the big five, are, are top twenty on our top one hundred right now, which I love. I think the combination yeah. of a really strong draft class plus a down top one hundred, just given graduations and I think just talent for whatever reason, it's not a great year. I expected to have a lot of draftees on this list and pretty prominent prominently on this list. Um, and I mean, I like the fact that we have Dylan Cruz and Paul Skeens both top five. I think that's fitting for their talent. I think it kind of makes the point that Skeens is our best pitching prospect in the game right now. And Dylan Cruz has a real case as like the top prospect in baseball with that placement. And it may seem aggressive, but I don't, I, I think it's fitting. I mean, shocker. I like where we have players on our list that we made, but <laughs> I think it is uh, like speaks to the talent of this class. You think Cruz belongs ahead of James Wood in the Nationals system? I mean, for me, yeah. I think you, it, for me, I would have him in that spot if you wanted to flip them, given what James Wood has done in pro ball. I think that is perfectly fitting and makes sense. I just think that Dylan Cruz has a more well-rounded profile overall. I think he's got a better chance to be a good defender. Um, I think he's probably a more well-rounded offensive profile with fewer question marks, like I've always been pretty high on James Wood, uh, his pure hitting ability, but I don't know that I've seen an approach as advanced as Dylan Cruz with someone who also has that sort of bat speed and raw power. Like he's just an exceptional offensive player. And I think he's got the ability to impact the game in like every day, defensively, offensively, base running, arm strength. Like he just doesn't have, I mean, we don't have a single tool that's not above average for him. He's done it in the SEC for three years. So, yeah, I mean, I get that he's never done it in pro ball. And so maybe you can question it. But just given how people talk about Dylan Cruz as a prospect, given the like how strongly this class was talked about it, I don't I don't see why it would be overly aggressive to put him in this range. Like, yeah, Jackson Chorio and Jackson Holiday are younger than Dylan Cruz. They're further up the ladder. But I, I really expect Dylan Cruz to hit the ground running and, and move pretty quickly in pro ball. Yeah, I think you could you could argue it either way. Um, I don't know what James Wood did in Wilmington in high A, which is a ridiculously difficult place for hitters to <laughs> have to hit, was very impressive. Um, Slow down since he got to double A, but again, he's still a 20-year-old in double A. Um, not super concerned about that. I think these guys both clearly are top 10 prospects and we have them both in the top five. So, uh, you know, I think you could argue them either way. I don't have super strong conviction on, on which yeah. way you want to put them. Yeah. Uh, again, I think I would, I would take Cruz over wood if it was just me, but if you wanted to flip them, I'd be fine with it. Paul Skeen's at five. Like, I don't know. Was there any consideration about having a guy like Gavin Williams or Bobby Miller above Paul Skeen's to start? I don't, I didn't really consider that, but maybe something to talk about since they're the next pitchers on this board. Um, I mean, they're, I guess, closer or they're kind of there <laughs> right now. <laughs> but I think the, yeah, I, I think you can make the case for those guys ahead. Um, but I think it's close either way. Like, I, I think all of them could be front end type starters. Um, but the, even just the stuff that Skeens has, um, the combination of stuff and and control too, is just maybe a, a 
tick ahead of of those other guys. Yeah. No, I think it makes sense. I think the other one I, I was pretty adamant about is Wyatt Langford being the top prospect in the national or not the nationals, the, the Rangers system. Like I really like Kevin Carter as a prospect, but I just feel like you could have a lot more confidence in Wyatt Langford providing more impact as an outfielder than Evan Carter. Even if you're higher on, on Carter, maybe playing center field and being a better defender there. Like, I think there's a pretty significant gap in, in the power production you can expect or you maybe should expect given what he's done in college and given the tools and given the strength and just the, the torque and the force that he generates at the plate. Like, yeah, Langford is a year older. Again, Carter has done it in pro ball, but I think also Evan Carter always has had this question about, okay, what is the power really going to be? What's the impact going to be? Um, and so for me, I was like, yeah, White Langford has to be above Evan Carter. So the fact that they're side by side doesn't bother me, but I think that's the right order. Do you have any strong take on that one? Uh, I would have Carter ahead. Um, wow, podcast over. Yeah, the <laughs> the defensive value is is going to be higher with Evan Carter. He's proven it not just in not just in the minors. I mean, he's done it in Double A now. He's done it in the upper levels of the minors as a twenty year old. Mm-hmm. Very good strike zone judgment. A lot of contact. Like it's not like this empty singles hitter either. Like I mm-hmm. think there's going to be you know, 15, maybe 20 plus home run type power in there um, and be a high on base guy, like a high on base center fielder with, you know, 15, 20 plus home run type power. I I would take him again. It's not like a a huge, huge gap or anything like that, but uh, I have a little bit more confidence in him than I have with, with Langford. Yeah, I think I'll just take this opportunity to say that I really don't think the separation between Langford and Cruz and Skeens is that much at all. And and there are definitely scouts who prefer Langford to Cruz just because of how he gets to his power uh, and a belief that he has more raw power in the tank. I think maybe one of the biggest questions with Langford is defensive profile. I would assume that the Rangers start him out in center field and see if he can play it just because the run times have been pretty impressive. He's never been a great defender in the outfield, at least from the reporting that, that I've done and from the times that I've seen him. But I think you give him a chance to play the position to see if he can, considering the run tool. Um, and I don't think you're going to harm him too much if you stick him there and he can't play and you just need to put him in a corner. But I think even if Langford is a left fielder and Carter's a center fielder, I'd probably still go with the offensive upside in Langford. Like, I just think it's it's pretty special raw power. And I think that he's also proven to be a pretty impressive pure hitter with a good approach. Uh, I think he'll have on base ability as well. Like Carter has shown. I just think I would rather lean towards the offensive upside, even if it's going to be a corner outfielder versus center fielder for me. Um, and again, like I would have liked to get Cruz schemes and Langford as close as possible, just considering how I view their talents, but it's tricky to do that when you jump them onto a top 100. Yeah, the um, one of the other guys we moved up pretty good this update. He's he was already on the top 100, um, but Roman Anthony with the mm-hmm. Red Sox has been. I mean, if you just look at the surface level numbers that he was putting up in Low A this year, it wasn't anything great. I mean, walks equal to strikeouts, but 
202 plate appearances, one home run, 228, 376, 317 slug, which is it's so unusual to see because he hits the ball so hard. I mean, this is not some little slap hitter. Like he's 6'2", strong, um, mm-hmm. has big raw power, was hitting Huge the ball hard yeah, in games. They they promote him. The Red Sox promote him to high A after what seems like kind of an underwhelming surface level slash line. And then he's just gone absolutely bananas in in high A right now in Greenville. 347, 478, 792. After hitting one home run in 42 games, he has eight <laughs> home runs in 20 games for Greenville. So he's somebody where it's like all of the kind of the scouting feedback on him, despite the less than inspiring slash line that he had mm-hmm. in low A, all of the feedback was really strong. And yep. now we're seeing the performance start to match that as well, which makes for, you know, look overall now it's 265, 408, 465. So with, yeah. you know, power, almost as many walks as strikeouts, there's, there's a lot of things to be really excited about with, with Roman Anthony. Yeah, he hit the ball on the ground nearly half the time in low A. So I imagine that was part of the, the home run disparity that you're seeing. It dropped to 32.7% uh, ground ball rate in high A. The home run to fly ball ratio has completely changed. It was just 3.3% in low A. Now it's 47%. It's probably not going to stay that high. But uh, yeah, just getting the ball in the air more frequently to take advantage of how hard he hits the ball is nice to see the approach. Um, I mean, this is a guy that I was just wrong on, I think, pre-draft. He was a guy that I thought was big power, uh, questionable contact, uh, overly aggressive at times. And it really seems like uh, during the spring, we were hearing that the approach was better pre-draft. And ever since he's been in pro ball, he's really been an excellent contact hitter. And like after seeing the raw power, like the fact that he's hitting like this in pro ball, I mean, his upside is pretty significant. What do you think about him defensively? I mean, he's a big guy, athletic, with a, a great frame. I could easily see him uh, sliding into a corner, but is there any thought that he stays in center field long-term? Uh, I mean, he's kind of been split in time between center, right field. I think ultimately right field's probably the best fit, but would would kind of continue him in, in center, but ultimately yeah. most likely corner and seems like the offensive profile is going to fit well there too. Yeah. Um, a couple other hitters we have, but I think Jacob Mizurowski and Noah Schultz are maybe two of the more interesting arms that are moving up this list. Um, Noah Schultz is a guy that we both really liked in high school. Mizurowski obviously has really phenomenal stuff, and it sounds like he was the, the most impressive pitcher at the Futures game. We have both those guys in the top 50 range now. Um, any thoughts on these two? Yeah, it's very, very aggressive with Noah Schultz, um, given that he's pitched six games and 14 <laughs> innings this year and he was a that's really his entire professional career's worth of work right now it's been extremely impressive when he's I mean, been he's on the still mound. Not a lot of run so maybe he should be higher <laughs> yeah he's throwing a lot of strikes which is consistent with what we saw from him as an amateur i mean he's six eight six mm-hmm. nine but has extremely impressive body control for a teenage pitcher 
that size. Uh, the stuff is ticked up from certainly from where it was when we saw him the you know the summer before his his draft year. I know it ticked up already during that that spring, although he you know he wasn't always healthy. So he yeah the stuff the reports on the stuff have been really good. The results have been really good. Uh, it's just an aggressive ranking right now because he hasn't he hasn't pitched much. Like he's not even going through. I don't know. He's he's not even going through the lineup period. Like like we talk about going through the lineup multiple times. Like there are outings yeah. where he's just not having to. It's so far his max innings in a game is three. It's been two innings, two innings, three, two, three, two point one. Uh, he's not thrown yeah. more than 40, no, 53 pitches, actually, in his most recent game is the season high for him. So they're definitely uh, taking it very cautious with him. Yeah, whereas our ranking is not. <laughs> but he's, I mean, as far as upside, like he has the upside, I think, to be a, a front-end type of, type of starter. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Then, uh, I, I kind of like, I like being aggressive on a guy like this. So I, I wasn't, as part of the discussion, when... When you guys are deciding where to place him, were, were you trying to pump the brakes more on No Schultz? It's, it would be surprising if that was the case because I feel like you were one of the earliest BA staffers on No Schultz. So it would be kind of funny. No, not necessarily term. pumping the brakes, just saying, hey, look, this this guy's barely pitched, and we're obviously ranking him very <laughs> um, yeah, very aggressively given, given the limited amount of time that he's actually been on the mound in games but the reports on the mm-hmm. stuff have been both the stuff and the control and the operation have been so good that it mm-hmm. it's not out of line to to have him there and then as far as loud reports on stuff like it's hard to get louder than Jacob Mizierowski. I mean, yeah. The... I just want to ask, like, which would you rather have? Because we have Jacob Mizierowski a few spots higher than Noah Schultz. I think I would even prefer Schultz still. I mean, Mizierowski has thrown a bit more. He's in high A, but I just think Schultz has a much greater chance to be a starter in the long run. I'm still a little bit concerned about the strikes with Mizierowski, although, again, I mean, you might not be able to find better stuff on this list than what he's throwing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Mizierowski, Brewers' second round pick last year. The stuff. I mean, the stuff has just been incredible. It's you know, fastball consistently cracking, you know, 100 plus miles an hour. Uh, ridiculous wipeout breaking ball. Um, just like watching video of it, it looks like the video is being doctored somehow to <laughs> make the ball. Uh, move in unnatural ways but it's mm-hmm. it's extremely impressive and then and he's the, also six seven too so that stuff coming from that frame is just unfair yeah like it's it's an unusual looking delivery i agree the strikes are still a concern they haven't been and he he's been used pretty cautiously too they're starting to let him throw a little bit longer and longer stints but the strikes haven't been like horrendous, I guess. I mean, no, I don't he's walking so, yeah. 4.6 per nine between low A and high A and, you know, getting, I think just got bumped up to double A too. So there's, you know, it there's certainly room for improvement, but it hasn't been as bad as, you know, like he went out to, you know, he went out to Carolina to low A last year after he signed, made a couple outings you know, 
walked seven guys, hit another guy. Like it was, uh, it, it was, it was pretty rough. And, and the control in junior college was, uh, pretty rough too, but it, it, it hasn't been quite to the level I would have expected this year. It still needs to improve, but, um, you're seeing, saying it hasn't been, it's not been as bad as you expected, or it's not been as good as you expected. It hasn't been as, he hasn't been as wild as I would have expected okay. gotcha. him to okay. be. Um, but he still does need to improve his control. But the improvements that he's already made are an encouraging sign for gotcha. for me. And then and then the stuff stacks up with, I mean, anybody I would say in in minor league baseball. Yeah, I would think so. I don't I don't know who the pitcher would be to to maybe point to. I guess it's like Skeens, Gavin Williams, like those guys. Um, yeah. All right. Anyone else who's moved up that that you feel like is notable? Uh, Again, I, I feel like I have less feel for the guys who have made big jumps just because I've been so deep on the draft stuff. But I, I know there are a couple other names that made big jumps. So whoever you want to talk about, we can get into. Ethan Salas, just we can't talk uh, enough about him. I mean, the wonder kid keeps doing it, huh? Just turned just turned 17 years old. He's hitting 280, 388, 500 in low <laughs> A right now. I mean, controlling the strike zone, hitting for power playing good defense behind is it good play. or great like, defense because i know early on it looked great how, how has it been in uh game? it's good i mean it's great for his age like yeah uh, some of the blocking this year maybe needs to tighten up like some of this mm-hmm. stuff is like kind of nitpicky for i mean we're talking about for a 17 year old like, like he's <laughs> he's he's younger than some of the players we have ranked in the top 10 on our 2025 high school list like that's it's it's that's insane (laughs) it's kind of breaking my brain to see what he's doing right now as as a hitter even like as a pitcher i could see a guy going out and even having some success or at least holding his own as a 17 year old in low a like that's not that wouldn't be as surprising to me but to see somebody putting up like a close to a 900 OPS and then also catching at that level is pretty incredible. I mean, it, yeah. like I, I think it's a debate and we have them ranked pretty close, like him versus Walker Jenkins and Max Clark. Like they're all ranked pretty close together Yeah, on our top 100. Like obviously we have the benefit of having seen what Salas has already done in professional baseball that we don't have with Clark or Jenkins, but I think it's pretty debatable who, who, who you would, who you would take it at this point. I, yeah, I think I would take I Clark or Jenkins still, but it's, it's at least a question. Yeah. <laughs> the fact that they're all ranked together, I think highlights that the one I was going to ask about is like Jackson Merrill. We have him still right above Ethan Salas. So the number one prospect on the Padres list. I I don't know. I I would maybe take Salas as the number one player in that system. How, how strongly do we feel about Jackson Merrill hitting to like take him over the 17 year old catcher who's doing what he's doing in low A? I mean, yeah, the the reviews he, on he just, Merrill has still been pretty strong. Twenty um, mm-hmm. year old uh, in higher, you know, now in he's double in A. Yeah, yeah I just got to double A, but. Um, even where like it might not look like kind of like we were talking about with Roman Anthony before, not that mm-hmm. 
you know, he was 280, 318, 444 as a 20-year-old in high A. Very little, very little swing and miss there. There's still things to like with the overall uh, numbers, but I think a lot of the but the underlying and the scouting feedback is just even louder than that. Yeah, has been has been very strong in in mm-hmm. his favor. Um, but yeah, I think to your point, like if by the end of the season, I would not be surprised if Salas ends up flipping mm-hmm. ahead of Jackson Merrill, and not because not that we do necessarily move Merrill down much. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. It's more just about Salas continuing to be a, a phenom. Yeah, no, it's it's pretty remarkable what he's done. Um, I'm curious to see what his actual minor league timeline is going to be, how quickly he gets moved. Because, I mean, he's still DHing as often as he's catching at this point. I don't know what the the rationale is there. Maybe just not to overwhelm him physically. Like he's probably still oh, has yeah, a lot of a... development to do there. Like you don't want to wear him out. Um, so yeah, I don't think many 17 year olds like you can be super talented, but like to handle the grind of catching uh, (laughs) every day in the minor leagues yeah uh, even if you're just even if you're playing yeah even if you're just playing every day not playing a demanding position for the first time on a pro schedule that would be a lot to handle so the added just physicality and and toughness necessary for for catcher and just the just how you get beaten up at the position I, i guess that makes sense yeah so we moved him up and then we moved i mean another international signing from this year like Salas, who we moved uh, up, or uh, I guess should say onto the list, is Sebastian Walcott with the Rangers, a shortstop, yeah. who was their big international signing this year out of the Bahamas. He's six foot four, uh, excellent athlete. It's it's definitely an aggressive approach, uh, but it's working for him. In as a seventeen year old, he's hitting three ninety seven, four thirty five. 810 he's got six home runs in 15 games in the arizona complex league um you know it's i did i thought there might be a little bit more rawness to his game coming out i mean he did start in the dsl like it wasn't you know super loud performance there in the dsl but uh Mm. to see to see what he's done so far i mean athleticism physicality tools and now there's performance to go with it like this is a this is a pretty exciting player yeah i remember josh first mentioning him in the slack a few weeks ago just raving about him and i was like i don't know anything about this player so it sounds exciting our my international role uh reviews i read them but i I read them, but I can't tell you how much of that information I retained over the last few you months, Ben. <laughs> you didn't read all 284 or whatever it was. I've read most of them. I yeah. read most of them. Okay. Again, I, I don't have the I don't have the John Manuel, Jim Callis recall ability. I would love to be able to just add that to my tool set. But no, he sounds exciting as well. Another another pop up. One of the other guys who moved up. Who I'm curious what you think about too is um, it's near the top of this list here. Maybe we've already talked about him. I'm kind of going crazy here. Don't say Roman Where's Anthony. It? Where's our list? No, not Roman Anthony. I thought there was another international player that moved up. Maybe I'm, I think I'm just losing my mind at this point. Junior Caminero or? Yeah, I guess he did move up. I don't know how high. He's already, he's already pretty We have high. him in the top 10. Was he, I think he was like top he 20 moved in the previous up. one. So. Adel, Adel Amador was an international player 
Uh, yeah, maybe he's the one. Who we moved up. Either. Yeah. I've... Him and Colt Keith are both guys that have been impressive and moved up kind of into this top 25 range. Yeah. Colt, Colt Keith, Keith just keeps man. smashing, huh? Yeah. It's like, it's pretty impressive what he's been doing. He just continues to, continues to hit, promote it to AAA now, keeps hitting, mm-hmm. um, kind of combination of hit and power with him. I, I think there's some... Yeah some still defensive questions with him, like where he ultimately ends up fitting. It's been and... second and third in triple A so far. And I guess most of his time was at third base in double a, um, pretty split at second so far. in AAA. Yeah. And I've, you know, heard some scout talk of like, maybe, maybe even first base ultimately, but the, the bat looks pretty real. I mean, the combination, you know, the swing, the power, um, it's all, that all seems to be there for him. No, he's definitely been impressive. Um, yeah, oh, those are, yeah. those are all my thoughts on the hundred. If you, any other names we need to mention? Uh, I mean, you just mentioned like Amador. I mean, just, mm. I, I think he no, no longer underrated because I just keep thinking <laughs> he's, he's being underrated that, I mean, he's a high profile international signing just has always hit always mm-hmm. had good strike zone judgment um we're seeing some power in there too it's pr- maybe ends up more second base than shortstop ultimately but uh, i think you have a you know a middle infielder who projects to hit toward the top of the lineup get on base at a really high clip give you 15 20 plus home run type power um i think he'll probably get to double a by the end of the year as a 20 year old uh no reason to think that the production's gonna slow down uh at any point either so yeah. um he's he's somebody i've just liked since you know forever ago and he keeps mm-hmm. keeps kind of trending uh up and up and kind of getting his his due now i think yeah i guess it does kind of speak to your conviction and his hitting ability for a player with really fringe average and average secondary tools to rank this highly. Like we have a 65 hit on him right now and he's really done nothing but perform in his professional career. So um, it, it seems like he probably, we probably have some of the most conviction in his pure hitting ability, just given, given that the tools aren't, aren't really that loud. I mean, maybe they'll tick up as he had some, some physicality and some strength, but yeah, I mean, it's solid like tools. There's, there's no, like, it's not going to be seven power or speed or mm-hmm. arm strength or, or anything like that, but yeah. Um, yeah, just a, a pretty solid tools across the board. And then the hitting ability, the strike zone judgment, the ability to get on base at a, a really high rate is going to mm-hmm. gonna play really well, I think. Yeah, absolutely. All right, cool. So check out the top 100 on the site, a um, bunch of other lists and rankings and post-draft coverage on the site. I think our top 30s mid-season will be rolling out soon. Uh, as you listen to this podcast, we... I don't know. Do we have any on the site as we record today, Ben? I think the first ones are kind of being rolled out this week for um, top 30s. Just just top 30s uh, updates, graduations, pre-trade deadline. Yeah, yeah, we're uh, we're rolling out uh, in the process of rolling out top 30s uh, pretty shortly for for updates uh, for a list for each team. So those those should be rolled out pretty soon. Yeah, and then post signing deadline, we'll uh, at some point after that we'll get the the draftees on those lists as well. Um, so always busy times for the prospect teams here. Uh, do we want to get into any listener questions here, Ben? 
Uh, yeah, yeah. Let's uh, let's hit a few questions. I know we obviously took some during the show and sprinkled mm-hmm. them in there too. Yeah, we have a few other ones. Let's start with uh, let's start with prospect vibe check on threads. Is this our first Instagram threads question? That's cool. Uh, I think so. Asked... Well, they're they're <laughs> they're new enough that uh, I don't think we've done a show otherwise. Uh, since then, I guess yeah. except for the the draft preview. I think it existed on the draft preview, but that one we didn't really have time to get to questions. But uh, prospect vibe check asks: Luis, Laura, Jefferson, Rojas, and Nelson Rada have been three of the most interesting prospects to start popping up this year. Do you think any of them will tap into twenty plus home run pop, given their hit tools and athleticism? This is all you, Ben. Uh, I think Nelson Rada might be tough. I, I, I mean, I think all of these guys are more hit over power and have really intriguing um, offensive profiles, just as far as the pure hitting ability goes. Um, less inclined to think Rada gets there as much as I like his swing and his, his zone control. Um, Jefferson Rojas, not a big guy, but I, I do think there's some, uh, some sneaky power in there where I think there's a chance he, uh, you know, you're not seeing a ton of power in game right now, but I think that's, that's something where that could develop for him. Cubs 18 year old, uh, shortstop right now they just promoted to low a um, and I think Luis Lara uh, I I think it's possible just given the bat speed that he has and the barrel accuracy that he has to get to a, a 20 home run guy um, you know Brewer signing out of Venezuela a couple of years ago he's in low a right now almost as many walks as strikeouts um, very good barrel control switch hitter does not hit the ball very hard. And he's probably five, eight ish. Like, I don't know. Does he end up getting going like the Aussie Albies route and like <laughs> becoming strong like that? Maybe. Uh, I, so I, I think there's a chance. I think he will get strong enough to be a, you know, 10 to 15 home run hitter, maybe 15 plus. And I, I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's out of the question that he has some 20 plus home run seasons in him. But uh, if you just kind of look at the, you know, maybe some of the exit velocity data that's, that he's hitting for right now, like he'd have to have a pretty significant jump up for that to happen. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, we've got another one from John David on Twitter who asks, most surprising overslot player and the amount they signed for? Um, we'll potentially get a few more of these that, that maybe fit for this question, but I think two players that I would point to right away are college players who got overslot deals that were a little surprising to me when I initially saw them. The first is Drew Hackenberg, who's taken in the second round. He signed to a essentially a $2 million deal at pick 59, where the slot value is 1.369. This one is a little surprising just given where he ranked on some public lists, including our list. I didn't, I didn't necessarily think he was an overslot player at this pick, but he is also a draft-eligible sophomore. So I think just the fact that he has a little bit more leverage uh, probably allows him 
to command a greater bonus than a typical junior might. The other one was was a, a college junior who the, the eligible sophomore element doesn't really factor in, and that's Cole Kerrig at pick 65 with the Rockies. He got a $1.3 million bonus. It's not a huge overslot deal. Slot for that pick is $1.184. Um, but he was a guy we kind of slid down a little bit towards the end of the process just because of some of the impact and power questions he had offensively. He was really impressive at the combine. I'm curious how much his combine performance and just the insane arm strength and defensive versatility helped him kind of command this sort of bonus. But that that's a guy that I think maybe fits on talent for a slot around the third round, but clearly there are teams that, that thought otherwise. So those are two. And then maybe a third, I guess, is Grayson Hitt. He was in the fourth round to the D-backs. Really exciting fall season for him where the stuff jumped and then it was just pretty scattered throughout the spring. He got $1.2 million at a slot value that is essentially 600000 so basically doubled it. That might be the most surprising of these three that I mentioned, um, just kind of given the performance, although I really do think the arm talent for Hit is, is quite impressive. So those are three for me. Do you have any, Ben? Yeah, I think those are good ones, and then we'll probably see some more by the time the signing deadline gets here where like a team you know maybe plan a of their signing plan doesn't work out and they go to plan b and give the money to somebody else and Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know we saw the orioles what pay carter young 1.3 million and change Mm -hmm. and he's you know i think that's a great great deal for for him Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we'll see some some others like that probably before the end of the deadline yeah and then we have one final question from aj street on twitter who asks most surprising bonus for a player so this is just total dollar amounts not necessarily over slot deal i guess this could be someone who signed for less than you expected um just kind of looking through it here again i think nolan shanuel is probably the first name that comes up right now of all the, all the signings we have in, he has the sixth largest bonus. And again, getting slot for 11, kind of already talked about how that was surprising. Steven Echeverria, I guess knowing that he was expected to be a tough sign, maybe not as surprising that he got $3 million, but I still think $3 million is kind of surprising there. Um, outside of that, I don't know if there's necessarily a, a super surprising number in either direction for me. Is there anyone that jumps out to you, Ben? Will you be surprised if Paul Skeens ends up signing for more money than Dylan Cruz? I think so, but I also don't know exactly how much money the Nationals have to work with. Let me actually pull that up really quick and see. Uh, my assumption was that Dylan Cruz was going to get the biggest bonus in this class. Um, let's see here. I actually think the Nationals have signed all of their top 10 that's, round picks. yeah so that's we can do some what math. i'm saying is like there's there's not a lot of <laughs> not a lot of wiggle room for negotiation there no there's not so their total bonus pool sorry i'm kind of doing this on the fly is 14.5 million um they currently have uh Sorry. I think they have six million committed. So that what does that leave? Eight something? 
and I'm not sure what the plus, overage makes this plus whatever yeah, the five percent overage is. Five percent overage you get. Yeah, I would. I would expect again. I'll have to do the math offline just so you guys don't have to sit here as I painfully stumble through this. But yeah, I would think he makes. I would expect him to make the highest bonus, but I don't even know if that's actually possible at this point. I think it's close. How about you? Yeah, I mean, it seems like Skeens could end up getting more mm-hmm. than Cruz, which would be a little surprising to me. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we, and we, it's we, also we, surprising. I, say that as, I was going to say, we, I say that as we just ranked Paul Skeens number five overall in our top 100. Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> but still. And if that's also the case, too, you see how teams don't really believe that even, even players in this draft class command like slot bonuses for like the first overall slot is 9.7. And no one's going to get very close to that based on the numbers we're looking at right now. Like unless the Nationals just decide to be the first team ever to go over the 5% overage, which I don't expect to happen. Uh, I definitely expected someone to get further into like the 9.5-ish range this year. But maybe teams just don't want to give that much. I mean, the slot values jumped pretty significantly this year. Uh, and Skeens has already set the highest bonus record overall, so maybe teams are more looking at that versus the slot values at the very top. Yeah, if there was going to be a draft team, class, I was going to say the teams probably have a little bit of leverage when you have five players of that caliber as opposed to mm-hmm. just like one or two in yeah, like just a Cruz and Skeens or yeah, that's a good call, probably fair. All right, uh, that, I think that's all we had for questions today. Anything you want to mention before we get out of here, Ben? Pretty pretty good, beefy episode for us. Two hours and 40 minutes or so right at this point. I'll take that. Is that what it is? Oh, boy. Yeah. yeah well, we had a lot to cover. Having fun, Ben. <laughs> lots of, a lot to cover. But, um, but yeah, next week, uh, I'll be traveling next week, so we'll try to get uh, an episode in. Might not be the, uh, the usual day, but we will uh, – we'll, work to make sure we get one out next week more more a couple weeks of travel actually ahead it's uh it's like the summer's kind of half summer's busy but still some still some big big events coming up yeah absolutely all right uh yeah don't have too much to add here i'll let you guys get get back to your day um thank you for listening to the show thank you for supporting baseball america and subscribing if you do if you don't um maybe consider that if you sat through three hours of me and Ben talking about players, you'd definitely like all the content we have on the site. So thank you guys for listening. For Ben, I'm Carlos. We will see you next time, everybody.